Hello again, friends. And you are my friends. And welcome to another edition of 605, the super podcast, the only podcast on Turner Time. The mothership! What are you yelling for? You got the job. The best wrestling podcast on the planet, the most influential wrestling podcast, the only wrestling podcast that matters. Call somebody. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah! Baby, baby! And boy, did I earn that moniker this week. And I'm very happy to welcome back to the co-host chair, maybe the most popular co-host, the wrestling humorist. My friend and yours, Scott Cornish. Yes, I've been dubbed the wrestling humorist. I'm I'm like Garrison Keeler, except I'm funny and I don't have grabby hands. <laughs> well, okay. Well, that's uh, uh, allegedly. Let's let's not go too far here. Allegedly, allegedly <laughs> grabby and <I'm>, hands. <laughs> and I can't say this about many people, but I'm better looking than him. Allegedly. Allegedly. Well, but before we go too far, I mentioned this has been a crazy week here at the top of the program, and. I want to apologize to anyone experiencing any difficulty in accessing any Arcadian Vanguard shows. Our shows have been doing very well. Actually, our shows have been doing quite well for a little while, and we've had a big bump lately. And we have a lot of new listeners on this program, as well as the other fine programs on the network. And it caused our server to go apeshit. So uh, now we're going to a much bigger, more expensive server. And hopefully that will cause everything to be fixed. But that's why several of the shows were offline. Several of them were not available for download or stream. The websites had some issues. And also why all of a sudden the 605 feed reverted back to 2016. But everything, uh, by the time you hear this, should be fixed. And uh, it's eaten up a lot of my time this week. And what a royal pain in the ass this was. But uh, it looks like we're now on the other side of it. Everything's well. But I apologize for everyone for any delays or any problems with your normal podcast listening schedule. To make it up for you, here's a couple of new sound bites. Don't drink the piss, Jake. Is it pharmaceutical or off the street? Scott, <laughs> an anything you'd like to say here at the top? Sure. Are you a sissy? <laughs> okay, I didn't know you were going to do that. What What do you have hooked up right now? <laughs> it's an app that I've probably had as long as i've had this computer it's called voices are and you a sissy are you a sissy <laughs> one moment i hope you die in extra <laughs> 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 oh well, miss spencer okay <laughs> all right very impressive very Thanks. impressive any other uh, show catchphrases you could do? You want to, uh, well? <laughs> You're nothing but a bottom of the curtain. Well, hold on. I thought it was just modulating your voice. Is it making everything you say to the theme of Randy Savage's theme song? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now you got to say another thing. Say, uh, whatever. Wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not, I, I don't want to pull back the curtain too much, but this is actually stuff that I'm typing. And then the, uh, and then this uh, app does it out loud. It's not me speaking, but hold on just a second. I'll I do this one. one. See if it, see, see I, how this will sound. Tell him in Mexican just to get out of here. I would have to type that. And uh, oh, that's a lot of work. The yeah. whole, I'll, I'll try it some other time, but just uh, try this on precise. Let's not my dad. 
That's not my dad. That's not my dad. That's not my dad. <laughs> See, everything's to Randy Savage's theme song. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's called that. There's several different voices. <laughs> yeah. And uh, how about a different yeah. one? Because this one's, you know, a little creepy. <laughs> I, I can't explain how. Let me see if I change it. Any women with British accents or anything? Mm, let's try Victoria. See what she sounds like. No. No, just a dull voice. But. All right. Well, she, can she say that's not my dad? Totally awesome. What is she saying? Totally awesome. Totally awesome. Totally awesome. All right. The show's bottoming out. Right, let's. Uh, goodbye, Victoria. <laughs> okay. All right. Well. Here we are, like I said, crazy week, and uh, just got crazier. How many minutes did that eat up? That's five minutes right there of the show. And uh, here oh, we are, God, Scott. we're almost done. Almost done. We have a packed show. I've actually been having a lot of difficulty in the last few weeks figuring out how to format the show, because I have a lot of content and a lot of long content. So I've mentioned several things on the Jim Cornette show coming up. You'll hear several of them this week. Some of the segments will be next week. Some of them will be the show after that. But uh, everything's top-notch. This is some of the best material we've ever had on the show, some of the best segments we've ever had on the show. And uh, the shows just keep getting better and better. But let's talk about a few things here at the top of the show, Scott. How offensive to you is it that Moolah is being celebrated? Moolah's in the Hall of Fame, but the Moondogs aren't. <laughs> now that, my friend, is a crime. I don't subscribe to that idea that one person's inclusion cancels out somebody else. But, uh, ah, the Moondogs were so great. I, I would, uh, I'd campaign for them any day. Who's your favorite Moondog? Hmm. The early uh, iteration of the, of the first tag team Moondogs in the World Wrestling Federation, Moondog King, Sailor White. Actually, though, that wasn't, I mean, Moondog Maine was obviously the first, but in terms of that next batch of Moondogs, uh, after uh, after Moondog Maine died and they didn't worry about him suing for intellectual property violation, uh, that next batch of Moondogs, do you remember the very first one to show up? Yeah, it was, it was uh, Randy Colley. <laughs> Strange that he was a Colley and he became a Moondog. <laughs> but, uh, Randy Colley, when he first showed up, he showed up as a singles wrestler, I, I believe managed by Albano, under the name Moondog Hawkins. And he didn't quite have the, he had the shaggy hair and beard. I don't think he had the, uh, what later became, you know, shirtless and then torn up acid washed jeans look. He was dressed like a house, they became dressed like house painters. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's really what it came down to. But it was, it later became Rex and King under the management of Captain Lou Albana. But yeah, yeah, we, we almost bypassed talking about Lonnie Maine. I watched some Moondog Maine stuff uh, last week and was just marveled at, at uh, what an unusual, strange character that was. And he was in the WWF wrestling Pedro for the title back in 72, 73. He, he went yeah, way 73. back. But um, are you familiar with the... Uh, the homeless street singer Moondog that did all the weird records back in the sixties. Yeah. I believe that's actually where Lonnie Main got the name from. Correct. When you see, yeah. When you see pictures of him, he was a, I believe a homeless guy that was a fixture all around New York. He was always set up near the uh, New York public library. And if you see pictures of him, he's got the big, big, long beard. I, I'd say it's it's the equivalent of like uh, Handsome Jimmy Valiant's beard or Johnny Legend, if people know Johnny Legend, that big, long, crazy beard. 
He was a blind street singer. He wore these giant weird horns on his head. And yeah, that that somehow I believe is where they got the name Moondog and the sort of that bearded, crazy Moondog image. It would have been wonderful if they had taken one of his completely insane records and used that as entrance music, but that was sort of ahead of its time. <laughs> this is probably, uh, I probably answer the question by asking the question, but did Alan Freed take the nickname Moondog from the street performer Moondog? That's a good question that I don't have a good answer for. I don't think he goes back that far. That's possible. But I think he was more of a 60s character. So I think Freed's Moondog radio show went went back further than that, if I'm not mistaken. And if I am, then screw it. <laughs> Somebody will tell me if I'm mistaken about that. Well, speaking, but, uh, speaking of Moondogs, I saw a picture the other day. I, I guess Jerry Lawler did some sort of event. Did you see this uh, to celebrate the anniversary of his barbecue restaurant? I did. I only saw pictures. I didn't see the actual match. But uh, yeah, he wrestled somebody called the Moondog. At this point, they've gone through every possible dog <laughs> and good over the years. Even in Memphis, there have been like a Moondog. The ones that we know, Rex, King, Spot. Cujo. Spike. Yeah. Cujo. Uh, Fifi. They did use Dan Van Hoffman as Moondog Fifi. They used a, a guy who wore the pants, who was the big black dog. That's right. <laughs> uh, so they, they ran through every possible dog name. I've even heard ridiculous ones on independent shows like Fido and Rover. <laughs> the, one, the one in Smoky Mountain, I think it was Spot, uh, the veteran. Yeah. And his, par his partner was a very short-haired. <laughs> he was a, a short-haired breed. <laughs> this big heavy set guy who was Moondog Splat. <laughs> but there's one that there's one that Lawler uh wrestled, I think was just the moon dog. And uh was hilarious to see that, that that's right up there with Doink. That's one of those gimmicks that is just always gonna live as long as there are uh independent uh small promotions throughout the South or, or wherever. Yeah, but I yeah, a little disappointed that they can't come up with a proper surname like uh you know, Moondog Swami or something like that. <laughs> I wish there was a infestation of Moondogs all across independent wrestling right now. I just <laughs> multiple Moondogs popping up and getting involved. That would be the greatest thing that could happen. Well, when you see that Moondog guy that, that Lawler wrestled. That looked that like the most bootleg fucking wrestler I've ever <laughs> seen. And no disrespect if he's listening or anything, but I saw his picture on the flyer before I saw the pictures of the match in the rain outdoors in front of 20 people. <laughs> Uh, I saw the flyer picture and I said, who the hell is this guy? Because you don't see too many guys pop up who look like they're about 45 years old, bald, long white beards, shirtless, <laughs> wearing cutoff jeans. You're like, who's this guy? How do I not know who this is? There was a period of time, though, just a year or two ago or a couple of years ago, where the guys that are working the Moondog gimmick could have done a Duck Dynasty gimmick. <laughs> they just, they didn't, I don't, if, if I'm, if somebody seized on that, incredible idea i'm not aware of it but going back to the original team of the moondogs did we ever discuss what i think is lou albano's greatest line ever i don't know the captain lou albano was managing the original rex and king the original team of the moondogs that he had rex and king and they won the uh titles from korea and martel and uh had a run with the titles and lou albano slowly morphed into a moon dog himself you know <laughs> he, was, he was wearing the acid washed uh, painter's jeans and and uh and that kind of thing but there was some legal problem maybe you remember exactly what the uh 
issue was where Moondog King, who was from Canada, from Newfoundland, couldn't come back into the States, so they had to replace him, which is where they got Larry Latham's spot to come in and join the Moondog teams. And if I'm not wrong, I think he actually may have made an appearance or two before they got rid of King. But in a rare behind-the-scenes look, Vince McMahon, after Spot has replaced King on the Moondog team, Vince McMahon is interviewing Captain Lou Albano and the, the Moondogs, and uh, Albano's going off and uh, saying his usual thing, and he comes up with the, the greatest line I think he ever uttered, which is Vince says, uh, I notice uh, the presence of uh, Moondog Spot, Mr. Albano, uh, conspicuous by his absence, is uh, Moondog King. What happened to Moondog King? And quick as a hat, Albano says, he got hit by a car. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely love that. The most impressive thing in the world is that Vince kept a straight face throughout all of these promos for so many years. Yeah, he uh, he was very good at that. Well, on that topic, let's move on here with the show, because I want to play something where someone doesn't do that. This is a perfect transition, so I'm going to take it. Got 15 more minutes on the Moondogs no. if you need. <laughs> we'll save that for the VIP special uh, that we'll do about That's Moondogs. Right. But, um, you know, Dr. D. David Schultz Part 2 comes up later on here in the show. Everyone talks about that promo that he did in the AWA with Gene Okerlund. It's gone around so many times, all in awful quality, of him standing there talking about wanting a woman in San Francisco, <laughs> but he can't find a woman because they're all men dressed like women, and Hulk Hogan likes that. And Gene Okerlund loses it and turns, and the camera zooms in on Schultz. And there's something so funny about when Gene finally breaks. Because it's yeah. the, just something, there's something about Gene Okerlund that when he breaks, it's the funniest thing in the world. I found this other promo. A few people sent it to me, and I finally watched it. And it's incredible, because once again, it's David Schultz and Gene Okerlund. This is May 1984, the WWF local promo, and he's with Dr. D. David Schultz. And there's a couple of things. Because you're not watching it, you're listening to it, the point where he breaks Gene up and that the camera zooms in on Schultz and Gene has to turn away is when he starts talking about who his mother lives with, just so you know, Scott. And the other thing I want to mention is this is maybe the only promo I know of that kind of points out that Sergeant Slaughter was a bullshit serviceman. They never actually served a day in the military. Just listen to the way Schultz deals with this. It's kind of hysterical. Let's listen to this promo right now. Gotta see him Monday... June the 4th. Come on in, Dr. David Schultz, if you would, please. Notwithstanding the big match between the Iron Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter, you've got a crack at the former Marine prior to that out at the Cape Cod Coliseum. You know, I'd give anything in the world to get my hands on him before the Sheik got his hands on him. You're going to do it. Because after the Sheik gets his hands on you, boy, or after I get my hands on you, ain't nobody going to want you anymore. We're going to make mince meat out of you, boy. We're going to make dog meat out of you. We're going to beat you up so bad. And you're talking about combat boots in Vietnam. i never seen a soldier in my life while I was in Vietnam wear steel-toed combat boots, you idiot. It rains a lot there. You're a goof. You ain't got everything upstairs. But Cape Cod, wherever that is, well, I'll get there. You know, I've got a good friend. I'll- friend of mine that lives out there. I don't care if your whole family what? lives there. I don't Play care if your right. mama lives there. I don't care if your daddy and your mama lives there together. I don't care if your mama lives with another man there. I want Sergeant Slaughter there. And I don't care if you bring your mama with you, Sergeant Slaughter. I'll slap her like a dog. And I don't care if you bring your daddy. I'll beat him like a dog. Now, see, I just don't care. 
You know what I mean? I believe there's an now attitude problem there. Now bring your family with you. Yes. I believe you've got the problem. I don't have You any. look like you got a problem. You're getting thin on the head. You're ugly. I don't like you. You got a bad, uh, what you call it, manners. You and Sarge might be kin. You both might be from Cape Cod. So just bring the whole family and line them up, because I'd like to slap about 15 or 20 of them plum silly I... after I get through with you, Sergeant Slaughter. Thank you very much, Dr. David Schultz, outspoken. You're welcome. Big day coming up at the Coliseum on Monday, June 4th. You won't want to miss it. Okay, first of all, the fact that he points out uh-huh. Sergeant Slaughter talks about combat boots in Vietnam. I've never seen anyone in combat boots over there, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And then, you know, when was the last time a heel wrestler threatened to beat up the mom and dad of the wrestler that he's going against? Oh, there's no, there aren't any promos like that anymore, man. Where was Oakland going with that? He's so great. but like, He says, he goes, I know a playwright. And then Schultz cuts him off. What playwright lived in Cape Cod? I mean, I'm sure many have, but is there anyone who Gene Okerlund would actually be familiar with? I don't even know. Oh, that's hilarious. I've got a friend out there. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> he, mentioned, he mentions Cape, Cape Cod, wherever the hell that is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow. And then, he calls, got, and then he points I, out that Gene's losing his hair, says that he's ugly. You think in this promo, he points out that Sergeant Slaughter may not have actually been in Vietnam, that he's going to beat up Sergeant Slaughter's mom and dad. He doesn't know where the arena is, and that the interviewer talking to him is going bald and is ugly, and no one likes him. <laughs> and that aired. <laughs> yeah. Not the last half of the interview, just berating Gene, and like, well, that's, that's fine. <laughs> the way he calls him a goof. The way, hold on, let me see if I can find that one part again. Bad boots in Vietnam. <laughs> I never seen a soldier in my life while I was in Vietnam wear steel toed combat boots, you idiot. It rains a lot there. You're a goof. You ain't. <laughs> it rains a lot there. You're a goof. <laughs> Oh, Sarge brought that on himself. I remember those local promos where he was into the deeper into the military mode where he'd always, you know, I can't hear you and the, <laughs> the, the drill sergeant things. And uh, I remember one time a localized promo for a match he was having with Pedro Morales in Utica. And he says, uh, you sound like one of those guys that used to be in my corps back in Vietnam. We used to say to him, Gonzalez, Gonzalez. <laughs> Run five miles, full pack. <laughs> years later, years later, that those those boastful statements would come back to haunt him. Not like it haunted Gonzalez. Poor Gonzalez. It won't bring back George Zip. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, let's let's move on with the show here. We're having we're having a lot of fun here, but we have a lot of things coming up. Uh, a few other notes I want to say once again. Next week on the show, we have a few things. Uh, I got to figure out how I'm going to format everything because we're going to have uh, John Hitchcock is back with another front row section D. That'll be coming up soon. We have several segments with Jeff Walton. One, I believe, will be on this week's show. We also have a segment I did with Kurt Brown, our friend Vandal Drummond, who just had his birthday. Happy birthday, Kurt. Happy birthday. And he is joined by Jerry Gray for another of our popular roundtable discussions. Jerry 
and Kurt discuss the Pacific Northwest, the Owens brothers, wrestling in Portland, and so much more. So most of that will be coming up next week, or some of it, plus part three with Dr. D. David Schultz. So that's next week on the show. And Jerry Gray's not on this week's show, but I do want to remind everyone that you can go to tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy and contribute any amount of money to help Jerry in his ongoing fight with stage four cancer. Paying for the doctors is a lot. His funds have been depleted. He's not a guy who spent his money. He saved his money. It's been depleted battling cancer. If you enjoy what you've heard from Jerry on this show the last several weeks, if he's made you laugh, if he's made you think, if you've enjoyed those segments, please consider going to tinyurl.com slash GoFundGoldenBoy and making a donation to help Jerry out. Uh, with that said, I want to mention a couple other things here. Scott, I want to thank Frank the Collector, who just sent me on vinyl a single on RSO Records. Robert Stigwood, baby. <laughs> it is the Mad Dog Vachon rap, or as it says here, Le Rap a Mad Dog. I'm very happy to have this. Thank you so much, Frank the Collector. This now goes into my ever-growing wrestling on vinyl collection, and I'm going to put that over here. You don't have this one in your collection yet, do you, Scott? No, I don't. Apparently, uh, I don't. Uh, I'm not in as good graces with Frank the Collector as you are. Hey, Frank the Collector, show a little love my way uh, next time. Well, we'll just see about that. But I also want to mention we have a show wiki. I've mentioned it so many times here on the show. Tinyurl.com slash superpod wiki. It is a show wiki where if you want to know information about some of the co-hosts, some of the segments, different things on the show, you can go there and get information. That site has been getting built out lately. And I got to thank Jace Nakarado. He has done such an amazing job and he's just getting going. He's added pictures. He's added descriptions. I was telling Scott off air before I've been laughing, reading some of his descriptions of different things. Oh yeah. Like the black scorpion torturing Bix that cracked me up the way Jace described it there, but uh check that out. And Hey, you could even, I guess, help out. If you have information you think should be added to the page, you could do so once again, tinyurl.com slash superpod wiki, the show Wikipedia, not even Wikipedia, just show wiki page. I also want to mention one other thing. You know you can go to tinyurl.com slash superpodstore to get t-shirts, stickers, magnets, and much more. We're about to add the mothership, the shirt. Everyone hears me yell it every week here on this show, on the Jim Cornette Show. A lot of you are members of the Mothership Facebook group. The official shirt is coming out. I know some of you have seen the logo. It's in the process of happening right now. Check in with me on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash superpodcast. If you want to make sure I'm going to get your size, if you want to make sure that you'll be locked in to get them, we're going to print them on ash gray and black shirts, so you can get it in black or gray. And also we're doing baseball shirts. That's what they're officially called. Three-quarter inch sleeves, I guess is the best way people think of it, where the shirt is one color and the sleeves are another. We're getting those with the logo as well. You can keep checking in with tinyurl.com slash superpodstore. For information about when you can get this, I'll also announce it, obviously, here on the show and on Facebook and Twitter. But the mothership, the shirt, oh. is coming at you very soon. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. And I'm very proud of this. I worked very hard on this logo for a while. I was very, very nitpicky. And uh, some people had to really test their patience dealing with me. They found out the hard way that I kind of insist on things being done a certain way. But uh, thank you to everyone who uh, who was a part of that. They're not involved in wrestling, so I don't have to say their names, but they know who they are. Uh, thank <laughs> you for helping me out with that. The mothership, the logo, and the shirt is now out there, Scott. I'm looking forward to those baseball shirts, and I want to caution all the listeners or just ask all the listeners, 
when you see a fellow 605er wearing that Mothership logo shirt, you know what to say. The Mothership! <laughs> as soon as those shirts get out there and get sold and start to get worn at public events, that's going to be the most annoying thing in the world since the what chant. <laughs> yo, 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 what's up, what's up, what's up? Okay, second most annoying thing. I'm sorry that happened. Is that for true? Don't drink the piss, Jake. <laughs> oh, jeez, oh, Is it pharmaceutical or off the street? Who are you and what do you want? I heard what you were talking about over there. I'm Captain Lou Albano talking to you about drugs. Kids, don't be afraid to say no. Anyone that asks you to use drugs is not your friend. Drugs can and will kill. Remember, don't be afraid to turn to your priest, your rabbi, your minister, your moms, your dads, your teachers, because drugs can kill. And if you do drugs, you go to hell before you die. Please. My boss called again and said, friend, we could be model for Fredericks of Hollywood, but it's kind of nasty. We were wrestling. I'll tell you. The 605 can stress anybody else. Okay. You piece of slime! You fuck son of a bitch, you. I hope you die in the next 30 minutes, you motherfucking bastard, you. Baby, baby. All right. Well, with that, Scott, I think it's time to move on with the show here. Totally awesome. <laughs> Everything's to that tune. It's like <laughs> how every Jimmy Hart song's the blue suede shoes. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to say it, but they're very, very simple. But anyway, let's uh, move on with the show. And as we're moving on with the show, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, the fine folks, the wrestling fans over at Ramsore Records. And of course, you can go to ramsorerecords.kungfustore.com. Enter the promo code 605 at checkout and save 20% on all purchases. So many people have gotten in touch with me recently. I saw several tweets actually in the last two days saying that they got turned on to different artists by hearing them during the Ramsor spot here on the show. And that really makes me happy. So it's not just about a spot. You're actually getting turned on to good music. So thank you to everyone that's gotten in touch with me. And I'm about to turn you on to something else really cool. I talked about the National Reserve a while back when Dolph Ramsor first signed them. I told you about them. I even played a little bit of music. Let me play a little bit of more music right now while I talk here. Hopefully it's not too loud in everyone's ears. But their debut full-length album, Motel LaGrange, finally will be out on May 11th on Ramsor Records. You can pre-order now on CD, LP, and digital download from Amazon, iTunes, and the official web store, the National Reserve.kungfustore.com. For nearly half a decade, the National Reserve has spent its Friday nights lighting it up at a Brooklyn bar, winning over barflies with epic sets and a remarkable breadth of songcraft and showmanship. Now, with their stunning new Ramsor Records debut album, Motel LaGrange, the band has crafted a rich and raucous collection that instantly places them amongst Americana's finest. It's force, directness, and performance not unlike some lost recording unearthed from the golden age of 70s rock and roll. I dig the National Reserve. I'm happy to say I have an advanced copy of the album. I'm really digging it, and hopefully you're hearing a little bit behind me right now, and you are too. Once again, you can pre-order now, iTunes, Amazon, or thenationalreserve.kungfustore.com. Once again, brought to you by our friends at Ramsor Records, R-A-M. S-E-U-R Ramsor Records it's very, it's very hard to turn that off I actually really like the song And now I have to turn it off and continue on with this stupid show But here we are It sounds great And I've got a lot of Brooklyn barflies that are friends of mine And every one of them goes out and buys that National Reserve record And 
You got a smash hit on your hand. <laughs> you got a smash hit and a lot of smash bar flies, more than likely. <laughs> but as we move on here with the show, I want to go to this conversation I had with Jeff Walton. You're going to hear Jeff again on the show probably next week. But Jeff... Talk to me a little bit about 1983. This is a period of time where he would work alongside Vince McMahon and then eventually turn down Vince McMahon. But it's an interesting period of time. Vince is putting all the pieces together to go national, to attack the NWA, to try and get every piece of top talent he can get and monopolize wrestling. And one of the first things he did was try to monopolize the magazines. And Jeff was there from the beginning of that. Let's go to this conversation right now. Some of you from Memphis may remember him as Tux Newman. If you're a fan of Los Angeles wrestling, NWA Hollywood, the Olympic Auditorium, however you want to put it, you may remember him on air. Let's go to our friend Jeff Walton right now. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast a friend of the show and a man that people in Tennessee still hate, and that is none other than the man behind Tux Newman, Jeff Walton. Jeff, welcome back to the program. Do you think they really hate me in Tennessee? Nah, I'm sure they were just, it was just all talk. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I feel better now. I'd pay for that. The grits and the chicken down there are very good. <laughs> yeah, the payday is made up the, for the hate. Not I'm to sure. mention the pretty young women. Hey, there you go. Now we're talking. But, uh, and I can talk that way because I'm an old man now. So. Yeah, yes, that's right. You can get away with it with immunity. <laughs> get away with it. But uh, what we're going to talk about today, Jeff, is something we briefly have touched on in the past, which is your involvement with Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation right as the expansion is happening. Previously here on the Super Podcast, you have been on the show, and you talked about picking Vince up from the airport. You talked about Vince's deal with Michael Bell uh, and, and how it ended up in the end not really <laughs> being a deal for Michael Bell at all. But you talked yeah. about your involvement from that end. One of the things I've noticed, uh, and recently I've been going through a lot of my old programs and scanning them and looking for information for research material, and your name, even though you're in the Los Angeles office, even before your involvement with Vince McMahon, your name was appearing in the Madison Square Garden programs. I just saw one recently, actually, from 1978, building up the debut of Roddy Piper. And we all know the story. Roddy was going to get a run with Backlund of some sort and got screwed up. And that's why Pat Patterson had four matches in a row at Madison Square Garden against Bob Backlund. But the article introducing Roddy Piper to New York is written by Jeff Walton. So let's start at the beginning. I know you worked with the magazines before you even did the programs. When did you first start writing for the magazines? Uh, I started writing for Wrestling Review Magazine in 1961. And that was for Stanley Weston. And then he soon uh, sold the magazine, and, and uh, the editor was Lou Eskin. And uh, what I would do is I would uh, I would write a bunch of stories, and I would take pictures at the matches. And my pictures, of course, weren't that great, but they used them. And uh, I would get paid uh, $25 for every story that I sent in. So naturally, I was writing stories uh, even on the uh, jobber's just so I could get my $25, you know, as, as much as I could make uh, from the wrestling magazines. But uh, I did a lot of that. I, I even applied to be the fan club uh, columnist for uh, Wrestling Illustrated when it came out. And that was, I think, Stanley Weston's went into that from Wrestling Review. And uh, I, I had a long period of, of stories with uh, ring wrestling, with uh, boxing and wrestling that was put out. I, I wrote stories and uh, took pictures uh, on the wrestlers for years before I got into the uh, 
L.A. wrestling office. And once I got into the L.A. wrestling office, I, I wrote stories for the magazines, but not as much because I was learning the business and from the inside, and that was more important at the time. To wrestling historians who go back and look at their old magazines and start looking for the name Jeff Walton, is that the only name you would be listed under for the articles? That no, you no, I, I, I had stories under Walt Jeffries. Because <laughs> like, 25 bucks was 25 bucks, and if I could do it under another name, you know. So uh, that's, that's what I did, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it didn't put me through college, but uh, it, it it helped me when I went out on dates, you know. <laughs> and you certainly learned how to write a good wrestling article. And let's now fast forward all these years later. You're in the Los Angeles office. And in this, let's start with this specific program, late 1978, building up Roddy Piper, coming into New York. What was your relationship like at that point with both, it wouldn't be Vince McMahon Jr., but really the New York wrestling office, but also with Norm Keitzer and the publications he's putting out because he's the one doing the programs for the McMahons. Oh, boy. Well, it's kind of a long story, but I'll, I'll try to shorten it a little bit. Norm, uh, Norm's, Norm's a wonderful person and a, and a really great guy. And what happened was that uh, Mike LaBelle and Vince McMahon Sr. became very close. I mean, close so that every day... Uh, Vince would call Mike and give him the figures for the Madison Square Garden uh, shows, how they were doing every day leading up to the big show. Every day? And Yeah, every day, wow. every day. And um, they would talk about all kinds of things. Uh, at one point, Mike asked me to get the uh, visas and things for Vince Sr. and his wife uh, for Japan, which I went and did. And at the same time, Vince would say, look, uh, I, I, I want to see how Roddy does here. And uh, can you let me have Roddy for Monday? You know, well, we only had a small little town for Roddy to work in, and it would be better for him to work for Vince on Monday at Madison Square Garden and make, you know, uh, whatever they were making, which was a lot more money. And so he'd say, send me um, a story on Roddy Piper's background or whatever so I can put it in the program. And Vince Sr. worked with Norm in uh, Minnesota, believe it or not, because Norm would print the programs very, very cheap, and it was uh, a lot more expensive to do it on the East Coast. So Norm would get all his stuff from Vince Sr., and then it went into uh, Vince Jr., because it, at the time it was a standard thing to order programs for all the cities and territories in the Northeast. and. What happened was the Olympic, uh, of course, was still running, but things weren't going good. So I got in touch with Vince Sr., and Vince Sr. said, uh, yeah, why don't you come out and meet my son, Vince Jr.? He's handling everything, and maybe you guys can work something out. Sr. said, uh, Jr.'s handling everything now. And Jr., of course, still didn't have all the territory. He had to buy out Skoland, uh, Monsoon. Maybe it was Zacco, yeah. Anyway, this was before that, and so I I went there, and I was there one day, and uh, um, Ed Cohen, who was doing the booking of the buildings, and Howard Finkel, who's still there and still working for them, 
uh, Howard picked me up at the airport. And and Howard said, uh, what are you going to be doing for Vince? I think he was a little nervous that maybe I was being brought in to do something, you know, over him. And I said, well, I think it has to do with the magazine. So when I got in there and, and I met with Vince, Vince said, you know, I'm doing magazines with Norm Keitzer out of Minnesota. And my father actually set that deal up. And I don't I don't want it. I don't want that deal. I uh, I'm not too crazy about Norm, and uh, I, I want to do my own program, and I want to do uh, our own photography, and I'm going to stop all these other photographers from coming in and taking pictures. We're just going to have a WWF photographer, one guy. So I, I also recommended Theo Arrett, who is a brilliant photographer out here, to come in and, and take photos uh, exclusively for Vince. And Vince was thrilled about that because he knew Theo's work. And he said, look, he said, uh, I'll have him move out here and we'll set him up with a big shop with all the equipment he needs. And he can do all the pictures for us and everything. And uh, I said, uh, oh, well, I said, let me talk to him when I when I go back. So anyway, he said, can you can you do the, the magazines? Can you do me a, a magazine? And um, just before I was working for Norm and and doing uh, stories for his programs. And what I did was I said to, to Norm, I said, let me do a Madison Square Garden program. So I completely redid the Madison Square Garden program, putting Buddy Rogers and Snuka on the cover. And I, I took the pictures, I, I changed them, I just made them pop out. I did the stories, you know, on all the guys instead of a lot of the ads and stuff that they had in there for trading cards, for AWA trading cards and stuff that didn't make sense for the WWE in the Northeast, uh, F in the Northeast. And I get a call from Vince and Vince says, damn, he says, I saw your Madison Square Garden program. It's terrific. It's 100% better than Keatser's been doing. So I'm definitely telling Keatser. And he says, I want you to come here and I want you to do the, the, the programs and I want you to do a magazine for me. So I flew back to, to uh, Connecticut, to Stanford. And he sits me down in a conference room with his wife and everybody else. And he said, I want you to come up with a name for our wrestling magazine. No, wait, I'll come up with a name for our wrestling magazine. So he calls it uh, WWF Magazine, plain and simple. Wasn't it um, Victory Magazine? Well, yes, it, it was. That's what I told him to call it, Victory Magazine. <laughs> and he liked that. But then he decides, I'm going to call it WWF Magazine. And what happens? The World Wildlife Federation <laughs> sees this, and they said, you can't use that. You have to change it. So we changed it back to Victory Magazine. Now, I had a feeling that was going to lead to trouble down the road, and it did, because he eventually had to change WWF to WWE. But that's another story. Anyway, so I start doing the magazine. And I, you know, I come out with two issues. I write everything in the magazine. I write all the stories. I put phony names on the stories. But I just did the whole thing. I put it together. I send it back east. Uh, they print the magazine. The magazine does tremendously well. I do a second issue. And he calls me one day and he says, 
Jeff, he says, you know what? I can't work this way. I need you here in Connecticut with me. I said, well, he says, well, he says, there's no, there's no if, ands, or buts. He says, I've got tickets for you and your family to come to Stanford tomorrow morning. I said, Vince, I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I have a home here. Well, you sell a home. You sell a home. That's no big deal. He says, I'll put you up, up here in, in Stanford. You know, we'll get you an apartment. I said, look, my wife works for a big retail company. She's a buyer. I said, I, I've got my kids in school. I said, there's no way that I can just pick up and leave and be in Stanford tomorrow morning uh, to stay. So he says, well, he says, then we're going to have to try to come up with something else. He says, I'll get back to you. And he puts the phone, slams the phone down. And I knew that that was kind of, uh, he was pissed. He, he slammed really pissed. the phone down? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if he doesn't get what he wants, he, he, even then, you know, hey, you know, I, I don't need to talk to you anymore. But we talked a few times after that and, and the whole thing, and he, he realized that this was a spur-of-the-moment thing that he demanded of me to do. And um, then he got people from out there, and I got a letter one day from one of the people that was, that was uh, doing the magazine out there with a bunch of rules on how to write wrestling articles what? for the w yeah for the WWF program and I looked at these rules and I'm going how dare they send me I'm sorry but I I was good at what I did and I loved what I did and I figured what the hell are they telling me I've been writing now for maybe 15 years and they're telling me how to write a wrestling story when they don't even know what wrestling is you know, these were people that just were from magazine companies, you know, different magazines that they had hired to put together a wrestling magazine. So I, you know, I called and I said, look, I'm not interested in, uh, they, well, we, uh, we were told that uh, you're getting $500 a story for your, mag for your uh, articles. And it's true, I was. They started to pay me $500 a story. That's wow. a lot better than $25 yeah, a story. That's a heck of a lot know? better. Wow, that's yeah. good money. So, of course. Uh, but uh, I just wasn't going to go along with what they wanted. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Now, I, I did try to get back into Vince, uh, you, you know, maybe a year later or whatever it is. But as a manager, you know, a after I had been uh, in the South and after I had helped Vince get Randy Savage into New York and, and his wife. So, well, tell that story because uh, I don't know if too many people know your role in getting Randy Savage to New York. Yeah, well, I was working for Norm Keitzer doing the programs and, and everything, and we were also doing other magazines that weren't wrestling. They were things on comedy movies and uh, uh, old-time films and stuff like that. And I was in Minnesota, and uh, I get a call, and it's uh, Vince Jr., and Vince Jr. says, Jeff, I hear you're there, you know, there in Minnesota. Um no, I, I, I'm sorry. I was in Tennessee already. And uh, Vince Jr. calls me and he says, uh, I, you know, I've seen you on television as Tux Newman. I, I like your work. Uh, you know, we've got a few managers here now, and I've got to wait and see how things go. But, you know, it doesn't work out. You know, I'd like to bring you in as a manager. But I'd like to know about this guy, Randy Savage. And, and I said, uh, well, I said he's one of the best workers I've ever seen in my life, and he, he's just gotten married, uh, but I know, I, I think he's looking to make a move, and I, I said it'd be great if you give him a call and, and talk to him, 
and see if he's interested in coming in because I've never seen a, a more phenomenal piece of talent than this guy. This guy will make you a lot of money. And the rest is history. Well, there you go. Tux Newman doing something good for someone. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, Tux Newman wanted to do something good for himself, figuring he could go in as <laughs> Tux Newman. At the time, there was no idea that uh, you know his wife would be uh, a manager or a valet for him because she was like a mouse, you know, at that time. She she didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to be heard. All she wanted to do was travel with him and and uh, enjoy being his wife, you know. So being in the wrestling business at that time was the farthest thing from her mind. What if Vincent brought you in and said, you know, I can't use the name Tux Newman. I want to call you Walt Jeffries. Yeah, I don't think it would have been as good as Tux Newman. Believe me. Yeah, that's certainly for true. Uh, take a yeah. step back to what you said. You came in, you were in the office in Stanford, the original office, and you were in the conference room. You said that you were with Vince and Linda and everyone else. I'm curious about who everyone else would have been at that point in 1983. You mentioned Ed Cohn was was uh, working there. Howard Finkel, of course, was their first employee. Were they in that meeting? Who else was? Yes. Was Jim Troy in that meeting? No. Uh, their lawyer was there. And um, uh, there was another gal by the name of Susan, and I can't remember her last name. Um, she was their photographer at the time. And she was there. and. Uh, it was it was strictly about doing programs and of course a national magazine. What was that office like? You know, so many people we think of the WWE and you think of Titan Tower and that big. Well, no, that was in the. Uh, he had his office in the Cape Cod Arena, yeah, which was a pretty big arena. I was really impressed, and uh, uh, it was inside the arena, and you you went through a uh, you went through a door and you were in a hallway. And you stayed in that hallway until the the inner door buzzed. When the inner door buzzed, you went into his office. And he recorded everything anybody said to him. Wait, wait, I've never heard that before. Vince was recording yep. conversations? Yes. And you knew this? Yes. I mean, he, he didn't hide it. He said, I'm going to record No, he this. didn't hide it. He said, do you mind if I record our conversation? And I said, no, not at all. I mean, what wow. what was I going to say to him, and what was he going to – either he was going to hire me to do uh, whatever he wanted me to do or, you know, adios. Interesting. Yeah, he was always he was always very careful of, uh, of what he said, and he listened very intently to what you said. And then that night he invited me to his home because he said, I want to talk to you about uh, some other plans I have. And I went to his home that night. I bought uh, – Stephanie Adal, because she was seven years old at the time, and I bought uh, Shane uh, a bowling set, which he loved. And uh, of the two, Shane was just a terrific little kid. And she was, you know, seven years old, you know. And uh, I sat there with Vince, and he said, you know, I'm going to tell you something that I really haven't told too many people. Uh, I'm going to go with a national expansion. I'm going to go into other territories. And I'm going to take over the other territories, and we're going to go national with this brand, and I'm going to be the only wrestling company out there. And that's why I want to do a national magazine ahead of time, so I can get my brand out there, and I'm going to start very soon and very quickly, which he did. Yeah, that's everything he did. I didn't realize you know, that Vince was like Nixon, that he was taping all of his conversations. I can't get past that. 
Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm I'm probably pretty sure he does that still today. I I mean I don't know if you know not on video on audio tape, but somehow you know that they do it. Wow, that is so interesting. You know, when you took over, when you became the editor of the program, even though it was still for a brief period of time, still under Norm Keitzer, you became mm-hmm. the editor. You replaced James Melby, who had been the editor before you, uh, a, a wrestling historian. Everyone knows who that is. Was there any heat? Did you have any issues with the fact that you were taking over this operation when Norm Keitzer and James Melby had really been the key guys for so many years? Okay, that, yeah. Oh, yes, there was a lot of heat. Uh, first of all, with, with Jim. Uh, Jim and I were best buddies when I was in Minnesota and I was working on stuff. See, I wasn't working on stuff that he was working on, so there was no there was no problem. And I really liked Jim, and I really got along with him really well, and, and we became very good friends. And, of course, everything after that, I think there was a little animosity that, that happened. But, you know, they, they weren't changing. They weren't. If you if you have a copy of those programs and you look at the old ones, just before I did the one with Buddy Rogers and Jimmy Snuka, if any of the listeners are listening and have those programs, you'll see the difference. And you'll see, uh, and not to toot my own horn, the ones I did were a lot better. But I had been doing programs for the Olympic Auditorium for years, so I, I had a lot of experience doing that. Jim was a historian, and he loved to know, you know he loved to put facts in there, and and he worked a way that not only Keatser liked, but Vern Gagne as well. So it was a lot different. It was the Midwestern type of of mentality of of doing things. Uh, when Keatser found out that I was working for uh, Vince and that the business was going to be done in New York and that Vince had been talking to me, uh, he just cut me off. And and we were very close, too. He, uh, When I didn't have a job and when I needed to make some money, he said, look, if you can come to Minnesota, I can pay you this, I can pay you that. And so that, that was about three months that I was in Minnesota, and uh, I was working for him. And I'm always very grateful to him. I, I don't have a bad word to say about Norm. But times were changing, and eventually, if it wasn't me, it would be somebody else that would take over the programs and, and do different things with them. Vince, I know, approached various people. At one point, he approached Bill Apter. At one point, he approached George Napolitano. I believe there was even a lawsuit between George Napolitano and the WWF for a time there. But if you go look at a Madison Square Garden show from 1982 and another one from 1984, you see all of those ringside photographers are gone. And that, that was really a big deal because all of these magazines, and there were so many magazines on the newsstands, they couldn't get access for the best pictures anymore. They couldn't get mm-hmm. access to ringside or even the locker room anymore. Right. Well, how big a deal was that in the moment? It was tremendously. It was a tremendous deal because that night that I was sitting with Vince in his home, and I can still see it with him sitting in an armchair across the room from me and telling me he's going to put all these wrestling magazines out of business. And I couldn't believe it. I thought it was just talk. But once things got going, and he really did stop all the photographers from from taking pictures, uh, and they had no way of doing it. And if if you notice, some of the magazines after that period, they're shot with telephoto lens from a balcony or way in the back rather than close-up ringside. 
So after you can ask after this, you know, they were all persona non grata in Madison Square Garden and some of the other arenas. So they had no access to shooting some great pictures. And and uh, Vince wanted Theo to be the only photographer to go down to these clubs and all over. And Theo, like me, had a home here, and he had a family here, and there was no way he was going to move to the East Coast and do that. So he lost out on that. I think Theo could have made a fortune, but he just it, he didn't care. He just wanted to be here on the West Coast. When Vince tells you, I'm going to go national... I'm going to put all the magazines out of business. Is he saying it to you matter-of-factly? Is he saying it with venom? How is he saying it? As I said it to you, he said it to me. Jeff, I'm going to put all these wrestling magazines out of business, and the WWF magazine is going to be the only wrestling magazine on the market. My brand is going to be the only brand you will see about pro wrestling. Well, he certainly so, did everything he could to achieve that goal, <laughs> and he still I, I think he did for a while. You yeah. know, I really did. I, I think he did for a while, but then after a while, you know, with the way everything was changing in the business and talent from all over uh, was beginning to get bigger and bigger, and by all over, I mean Texas Territory, I mean New Japan, uh, also All Japan uh, with Baba's group and uh, you know, you, you couldn't ignore any of that. And times were changing and things were happening and the computer age was coming upon us or, or upon us. And it was easy to get access to other areas and, and seeing who were stars in this area and who won last night or who won eventually three minutes ago or a minute ago. I mean, it was just a tremendous change. Right around this period of time, is right around the same period of time where Jimmy Snuka has his incidents. There were obviously two incidents that gained a lot of publicity, the second one resulting in the death of Nancy Argentino, who was his mistress at the time. What were you told, if anything, about the status of Snuka? And from the best of your knowledge, how did they see Snuka? Did they see Snuka as a problem that they couldn't run with? I mean, how, how did they approach what was happening with Jimmy Snuka, from the best of your knowledge? Well... I went to uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut when I first came. I flew down with Ed Cohen and uh, Finkel, and so we we went around together. And they, you know, we they showed me where they shot television, and they wanted me to do a an interview uh, with Buddy Rogers at the time. He was on there, and it, it, it was Rogers segment or whatever. Rogers it was. Corner. Rogers Corner, and. They told me, they said, be careful because Buddy will try to upstage you. We want to get out the fact that you are the new editor of our magazine. And so, you know, you don't let him upstage you. And, of course, I had been doing wrestling and, and all that. I knew that that wasn't going to happen. And then I, I had to be there for the whole day. So what I was doing was I was going around the dressing room and trying to get information on the guys for the magazine. And, you know, in doing so, you talk to the other guys and you see what they're saying and the whole thing. And what I had heard at the time was, is that Snuka was, he, he was bad news in so much as that he was always late to the arenas and he, but Snuka was also their number one draw at the time. You know, yeah. he, he had been working with Buddy Rogers, Buddy Rogers was helping him to get over. So he felt that he was their number one draw. So uh, 
it was an ego thing with him. Now, when I talked to him, he was a very civil and a, a very nice guy. But but a lot of other guys told me, you know, watch out for him, you know, and and uh, you know, this is Vince's baby right now. But they weren't happy with uh, uh, stuff that was going on with him, you know. How was the locker room? Because they must be as confused as anyone, because there's no way Vince is just opening up to everyone. So they're sitting there, and they have to kind of guess what's happening. But what they know is we're going into other areas, because at this point, WWF starts going into Ohio, which is head-to-head with Georgia Championship Wrestling. WWF heads into Los Angeles. WWF starting to make their moves into San Francisco, which Vern Gagne is now occupying after Roy Shire closed up shop. So Vince is doing things, and he's also about to be on cable television on USA. He already has WOR. He's a year away from getting TBS. In that locker room, do guys know that Vince is trying to do this? or guys confused as to what's going on? What are they thinking? No, no, I don't think anybody was confused. I think everybody was happy because they were making money. They were going to areas and making much better money than they were making before, because before they were going to what? Coney Island, or they were going to Bridgeport, or they (laughs) were going to, you you know what I'm talking about? They were going, like out here, they were going to smaller cities, and then, of course, the big city was Madison Square Garden, or or the uh, Cape Cod Coliseum, or or Nassau, or whatever. Yeah, Baltimore. Yeah, and Philly, and, and wherever the spectrum, or whatever. So the more bigger arenas they had, the more money the guys were making. And Smeka was drawing people in, and they were making making big money. There were there were no beefs. There was there was never a beef. And in fact, even out here years ago, when when guys were you know there was never really a beef that I heard of from the guys that they weren't making good money. You know, but you tried to make even better money. When Mil Moscaris would come into this territory and work for two weeks in all the clubs. In the territory, I was thrilled to death. Why? Because I got a percentage of of what he drew, and he would draw very well, you know. And uh, I was thrilled to death. So, uh, and and only that, you know. And it was the same thing with having midgets or girl wrestlers or whatever. You, uh, if you drew better with with some of the other talent, everybody made more money. So I don't think there was that thing, but you know, you could see that things were changing, and and uh, a lot of people were kind of skeptical that that Vince would, you know, that he could take over the way he was taking over. But once he would pay a, a TV station where they were bartering for the shows, he would pay. He would go in there and give them twenty five hundred dollars a week for his shows, and and sign a contract for a year. And the very first, and how did I know that? Because the very first thing he did was come into Los Angeles, and and that story I told you, where Channel Nine, which is an affiliate of WOR in in the East Coast, they took the show right away because he paid them, and they didn't have to spend any money for any kind of remote or camera equipment going out into an old barn and setting up bleachers and having shows like that. All they were doing was cashing checks. This was wonderful. And his product was good. So this was a time when things were beginning to change, and they were beginning to change in Junior's favor. Not that Senior was happy about it, because he had a lot of friends in the NWA, and he was a member of the NWA, and going into the various uh, different uh, cities and states, and doing this was causing a lot of trouble. And I don't know if you remember, 
but there was even talk, you know, hey, we got to get rid of Vince Jr. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was talk. So you see that what he was doing was working. Was it the right thing to do? Yes, probably at the time. I mean, if you're really going to have a wrestling promotion and make a lot of money, that was the way to do it. And he was very lucky. There he is, our friend Jeff Walton. Baby, baby. And you'll hear more from him, like I said, probably next week. We're going to talk, Scott, about the WWA. We're going to talk about some of the guys you don't think of necessarily as being a major world champion during the time that the AWA, the WWWF, and the NWA were riding high. But the WWA in California was one of the major world championships. We're going to talk about Pedro Morales, Mark Lewin, Bearcat Wright, some of the top stars, some of the major attractions in Los Angeles in the 1960s. Stay tuned for that. Sounds very cool. You know, I have Jeff Walton's home phone number. I, I didn't know that, no. Yeah, I got it written down right here. Richmond 95171. Okay, well, that's obviously not his home number, uh, although it would be cool ah. if someone did have that number. No, no, that's the famous number of the Olympic Auditorium. But right now, we're going to go to something that's become an annual tradition here of the show. My conversation with Scott Teal, the state of Crowbar Press. Scott comes on the show usually around this time, February or March every year, and gives us an update on some of the books that he released the previous year and some of the projects he's currently working on and developing right now for future release. He puts out the finest wrestling books. You can go to crowbarpress.com, let him know you heard about it right here on the 605 Super Podcast, and get some of his many awesome books. But let's now go to this conversation with wrestling historian and friend of the show, the man behind Crowbar Press, Scott Teal. I am happy to welcome back Scott Teal from Crowbar Press to the Super Podcast for what has become an annual tradition here on the show, The State of Crowbar Press, where we talk about some of the books Scott has published and also some of the books and projects Scott is currently working on. Scott, welcome to the show. Welcome back. Well, thank you very much, Brian. I'm glad to be here. You had a great 2017. You put out some really, really amazing books. I want to talk to you a little bit about some of those before we talk about what's on the docket for 2018. And first, I want to talk to you about a book that I really, really liked. And I know so much of it. Bobby Van Cavillar has done tremendous research for years. You know, the, the Matt Wars collections that he put out that I never got my hands on, but Jim Cornette would always rave about these. And you actually took one of those, 1977 put them in a book, and really dressed it up and expanded upon that research. Talk a little bit about that book, Florida Mat Wars, 1977. Yeah, Bobby and I have talked for years about his books. Uh, I love the research he did. He was one of the earlier ones that really did a thorough job on researching, you know, a, a, a territory, you know, yeah. his Florida books were so detailed and he had, I mean, he missed very little when it came to, came to the ads and the clips and all that kind of thing. Uh, they were really good. After we got into the newspaper archives online, we realized that even with all the research he did, he was missing a ton and that wasn't his fault. It's just when you work with at the libraries with microfilm, you just got to scroll through every single newspaper, the sports page, and it is time consuming. And even then you're not going to find everything because generally when we do research, we don't look at every single day newspaper, you know, for Tampa, for instance, we would go to Tuesday, the Tuesday newspaper, and then we'd check the Wednesday newspaper for the results. But there's articles that appeared in the Tampa newspaper on Thursday, Friday, Saturday that, that we miss because we just, we can't check every single day. 
But with it being online now, it has just completely changed the whole ballgame. I mean, we're able to type in search terms in the newspaper databases and it brings up, you know, we, we can search somebody's name in and it'll bring up every new place that they can find that they're in newspapers. Uh, we can go to every single newspaper for, for, a, for a specific city. And uh, that's exactly what I did for Nashville and uh, the Madi- well, not Madison Square Garden as much. We already had most of those, but for Nashville, it's what I did. I-, I looked at every single week of Nashville newspapers from 1906 all the way up to present uh, 1980. Uh, so yeah, Bobby did an absolute fantastic job, and I have bugged him for years about getting his books into a more professional format because what he was doing, he would paste them up on regular sheets of typing paper. And then he would he would uh, copy them and he and he used that uh, spiral binding to put them together or tape binding. They were fast, just great. But I I'm just one. I like to see things more in a more professionally looking format. And and I'm not talking bad about Bobby here. I've, I you know because he and I have talked about that. He he loves the way I present things. So it was really in a way it was sort of a, a natural for the two of us to come together because he has so much good material. And uh, I have the expertise of putting it all together, cleaning up the clips, because those clips, when you get them off microfilm or off uh, the Internet, they don't look like they do when when I present them in the books or or even in my uh, Crowbar Press archives on the Facebook uh, group. Uh, I every single clip I put on there, I clean up, I sharpen, I, you know, I'm, I make it so it looks really, really nice and easy to read. And that's what we did with the uh, 1977 book. Uh, Bobby sent me a huge box just filled with all his paste-ups. We went on the Internet and found every single article, every single ad we could find for 1977, copied them. Uh, I cleaned them all, sized them all so that they're all exactly the same same width anyways, and uh, and then then put them into the layout. Uh, but I was could not be more prouder of a book than I was of the 1977 book. Uh, Bobby has had some family issues, so we haven't been able to do another one. But uh, we have talked about once he gets rolling again, and he's he's at that point now. Uh, we're going to be hitting every every year we can possibly can possibly do. Fantastic uh, in, in Florida. Yeah, he, the next two years he wants to do, and I love it because that's when I. Uh, these are the years that I first discovered wrestling, and that was 1968 and 1969. It'll probably, I'm sure it'll be two two books, two separate books, but uh, those will be probably the next two books we do will be 68 and 69. And possibly after that, we might do something like 1983 for the more, you know, the the younger fans who yeah. remember more, more of, of those days. Because, you know, we're, we're, there's fewer and fewer wrestling fans around who remember the 60s and the 50s. Uh, so we want to sort of try and, you know, reach out to some of the other ones. And uh, my hope in that is if we get some of these fans that remember wrestling from Florida in the 80s, it may interest them enough to want to get some of the older books, you know, say one from 1950 and learn more about it. That's my whole goal with all the books I've published. I want people to develop an interest so so they want to learn about pro wrestling history so that they're just not tied into whatever it was, you know, they knew. You know, if, if you're a Hogan fan, great. But I hope you'd also look back in the past and, and learn from it and learn how great wrestling was in, in the days gone by. I think you do a great job with that. Obviously, I'm a case in point because I've been reading your stuff since I was a teenager, and it <laughs> certainly had a big influence on me and drove me to really love and seek out 
wrestling history and stories from the past. When it comes to Florida Mat Wars, one of the interesting things I thought with this edition, 1977, was the inclusion of all the outlaw shows. That was some really cool stuff. And obviously, if we know anything about what was happening in championship wrestling from Florida in 1977, we really don't know anything about the outlaw scene. So I, I really like that stuff. Yeah, we, we missed a lot of the outlaw shows. I call them outlaws. And I say that with an apology. I don't mean, I remember when I was young, when I first learned about wrestling, I, I, I would write, I wrote a newsletter. And in one of my newsletters, it was from Florida. I called, I said something about an outlaw show taking place in St. Petersburg or, or wherever it was. And Tom Burke, one of the great wrestling historians, he sent me a nice letter. Back then, we did everything through the mail. <laughs> you know, it was too it was too expensive to call and and talk long distance, and it and we didn't have anything. Al Gore hadn't invented the internet yet, so so we had to do every, we had to do everything by mail. Well, Tom writes me a letter. He says he says I enjoyed what you wrote your newsletter. He says, but please don't call them outlaw shows. He says these shows are are independent shows. They're very important and they play a part in the in the in this whole scheme of pro wrestling. Wow, and that really yeah. It really made me open up my eyes to, and the only reason I called them outlaw shows is because I knew some of the wrestlers and that's what they called them. You know, that's just a term we use. So I've always been very careful since then not to use that term as much, but you know, people like yourself, I know where you're coming from, why, why you refer to that way. And I do the same thing. I'll call them outlaw shows. But when you look at the title of the book, Florida Mat Wars, it's not called Championship Wrestling from Florida. It's called Florida Mat Wars. And by including the independent outlaw shows, they were just as much a part of Florida Mat Wars, you know, as Championship Wrestling from Florida was. And in, in a way, it's sort of cool because there was a war between the outlaws and Championship Wrestling. I mean, they were always fighting against each other. You know, I mean, the the independents didn't do near, you know, any business like the championship wrestling did. But but uh, yeah, I, I we both both Bobby and I felt like we, we needed to include the every single thing we could find about pro wrestling, be it the smallest show we could find uh, included in that book. You mentioned that you guys are considering the next two volumes potentially being 68 and 69, and that kind of goes into my next question, which is about two of the books you put out last year, which were compilations of photography from Florida and, of course, from Southeastern Wrestling, and the Florida book was from 68 and 69. So talk a little bit about these books you've put out called Through the Lens, Through the Ropes, these photography collections. Yes, uh, this is a series of... uh photos taken from negatives that I purchased. I bought a whole collection and uh, I took, I've scanned, I can't tell you, probably thousands of pictures from Florida, uh, from the late sixties, early seventies. I've got, uh, I also have Jerry Prater uh, who shot a lot of pictures in Tampa. uh, And I'm, I'm a little confused on that collection because I'm sort of wondering if Jerry Prater had Ross, there was a guy that took pictures in the mid '60s in Tampa, uh, into the late '60s. Actually, his name was Ross Parsons. I never knew him. I don't know anything about him, but I do know he did most of the photography work. A lot of the pictures in Jerry Prater's collection look like the photos. I mean, were from the you know the mid '60s, '65, '66, '64, and I'm always wondering whether or not a lot of those were Ross Parsons' negatives and that he had given them to Jerry. Of course. Jerry passed away, and he's one of the guys I really wish I'd been able to interview because he was part of that championship wrestling from Florida office, and uh, he would have had a lot of great insight. But uh, 
but th- those are some of the some of the ones I'll be presenting in the future. And then the Knoxville ones, of course, uh, were from the what, say about 75, 70, 1975, 76. Uh, it's a time when Don Carson was managing the Mongolian Stomper. Uh, Gorgeous George managed the Stomper for a while. It, it was just that great nostalgic era, you know, those those years in the middle uh, middle of the 70s. And uh, I, I don't know, I haven't, to be honest with you, I don't sell many. I haven't sold many of any of them, but I do it just like I do, the same reason I do everything else, just like the posters. I do it because I want to preserve this stuff. And by putting all those pictures into a book, you know, it gives people an opportunity to, to re- look at them and, and remember what things were like back then. And because there's a lot of fans, you know, from Knox, the Knoxville area who remember those days, but there's not a lot of footage, you know, so the photos are pretty much the probably the best thing we'll have. And and this way, like I said, it uh, preserves those those fo- photos. I've got all the negatives here, but they don't do anybody any good. You know, if they're just sitting in a closet, I want people to be able to enjoy them. Yeah. And I mean, these books are really cool. And the Knoxville one is really, really cool. There's a lot of really great photos there. And I think people who listen to the Studcast as we get going into Southeastern Wrestling in the coming episodes, I think you'll really enjoy this book. So check that out. But I want to take a step back and go back to uh, something that came into my head about Florida Mat Wars, which is this really is the golden age of wrestling research in terms of what you're able to do on newspapers.com or newspaper archives, whatever, whatever site you use. It's the golden age of wrestling research, and it really cements how impressive it is, the work, the body of work that guys like Fred Hornby and Clawmaster and James Melby and, of course, J. Michael Kenyon did for so many years without these resources. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's an interesting point you make. I had never even thought of that. We talk so much about the golden age of wrestling, and, of course, that is that depends on the in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Funny story. Recently, I had a guy wrote me, he ordered one of my books and he he wrote me an email. He says, I just ordered one of your books. And I'm excited about reading it. He says, I grew up in the golden age of wrestling. And he says, it was when Hulk Hogan won the title from the Iron Sheik. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it just cracked me up, you know, but I got thinking, you know, to some people that would be the golden age of wrestling. To me, it's the fifties and the sixties, you know, that that's because that's what I love, you know, but people, these younger people today, that it would have been the 80s. So, but uh, anyways, yeah, that is an interesting point because this is the best time ever. I'd say the past three or four years for researchers of pro wrestling history, because we have so many uh, outlets now, so many places we can go to get information. You know, we've got the internet. I don't always trust the internet a whole lot, so I always check two or three sources when I can. But we also have the newspaper archives, and there, there's just so much now available that we didn't have before. And not only is it available, I mean, we've always had microfilm, so that a lot of the information has been available. But it was so hard to access the microfilm, you know, material. Now you can get online and, and you know where to look and how to look. You know, you can access so much, and you know, right there from the comfort of your home, you're not sitting in a library somewhere putting dimes or quarters into a microfilm machine. You know, it's the golden age of wrestling research, but what do you do with that research is the big question. Anybody could do it, but what do you do with it? And that's one of the areas I think you've excelled at, which is taking the research, getting it into book form, and formatting it into a way that it's easy to digest and as a story, even if at times you're just reading results, you've done that so well. And 
case in point probably would be the two books you put out in 2017, the different, I, I don't know what to call them, town books. You did one on Madison Square Garden and one on Nashville. I guess I should say cities, not towns, but you know what I mean. Yeah, that, that's sort of what I actually called them. I, uh, and it wasn't until I published, actually published the Nashville book, the second one, that it, I stumbled across. It just, I don't know, it just hit me out of the blue. I thought, you know, a great name for this series would be The Great Cities of Pro Wrestling. And that's sort of what the way I refer to them now. On the same note, I have a guy that's named Jason Presley. What a researcher he is. I mean, this guy is great. He is tackling not just a city, but in, in the entire state of Alabama. Wow. He has, a, he has, and he goes way back to the, you know, Joe, Joe Dillman, Joe, uh, uh, Joe Dillman and uh, Gunther and Chris, uh, oh, why can't I think of his name? The guy that promoted before uh, Birmingham before Nick, Chris Jordan promoted uh, Birmingham, Alabama before Nick Goulas, you know, took over. Actually, Nick Goulas was Chris Jordan's gopher. He ran errands for Chris Jordan and did all the things that, uh, you know, Chris telling me to go to the box office. I need you to help sell tickets. I need you to take the ring here. I need you to do this, do that. That's what Nick Lewis's job was. And uh, I guess uh, later on, of course, he moved to Nashville. Like he met Roy Welch somewhere, and uh, that's how he got up here. But uh, anyway, Jason is researching every city in Alabama. He just is almost through. Now, you'll have to, you, this is just unbelievable. He's for my Nashville book. I did the years 1906 through 1960. The second volume will be 1961 to 1980. Jason has done the years 1930 to 1935 in Alabama, and it's going to fill the whole book. I mean, he has come up with stuff that is just so cool. And I cannot, I haven't even seen it. He sent me snippets here and there asking questions, you know, because he wants to know how to format it and, you know, so that it's easier when I put it into the layout for me to, well, I don't have to do a whole lot of, you know, finagling around. Uh, so he, it's just, it's going to be incredible, but he's planning to do, you know, I don't know if every one of them will be just cover five years, but imagine 1930 to 1935 for just one book. I mean, it's just, I can't, it's, it's even, it's hard to believe. Well, what's really great about that is let's say you did Alabama 1970 to 75, although there's still so much people don't know. People know much more about that than that period of time in the thirties. I don't know anything about Alabama wrestling in the thirties. So that book would actually be producing brand new material for so many people who have no idea of anything. I mean, that period of time in wrestling in general, there's still so much information we don't know anything about. Absolutely. And the, the other great thing about the older years is there is so much more information available because especially Alabama, when you get into Alabama in 1973, 74, maybe even before that, maybe back to 1970, from then on, there is so little information available. Florida, man, they had great articles, I mean, all the way up to 1980. But Alabama, there really wasn't anything after 1970. They'd have results, they'd have the ads, but nothing of note, like, you know, like I find for the, you know, the Nashville paper uh, book or the uh, Madison Square Garden book. They, they had great articles about the things that happened. Uh, another book I'm working on, uh, and I, I'm re using this as, a, as an example, is uh, the Amar Amarillo Territory, oh, or, or Amarillo, the city of Amarillo. Chris Knight, he is the man when it comes to West Te Texas wrestling. He put together 
all the Amar- really Amarillo results he could find from, I forget where he started, he started like 1930 and worked his way forward until uh, Mulligan and, and uh, well, Dick Murdoch. And Murdoch. Yeah. yeah, until they until they quit. So he wanted to know if I'd like to work with him on it. And I said, sure. So I went back to the, or, or like 1906 and worked my way forward and got until I got up to 1930. And then I sent him that plus what I found in, 930, in uh, from 1930 up that he hadn't found. Well, what does he do? He goes out and adds pages and pages and pages of stuff <laughs> that after he after I sent him what I did that he found even more. And it, the Amarillo book, just the city of Amarillo, it's going to be two huge books. Oh, man. And it's not only articles, it's not only results, but a friend of mine named Chuck Thornton uh, loaned me, I would say, somewhere along the line of 250, 300 Amarillo programs from the 1940s up. I scanned 2,600 pages of those programs. Wow. And it. It it has pictures of Dory Funk Sr. when he was young wrestling in Amarillo, uh, Dizzy Davis, uh, all the names in, in Amarillo. I mean, from the early days all the way up. Uh, there was a guy named Wayne Martin in Amarillo. It was a big, big name there uh, for years. Uh, plus, he, plus, Chris and I, we talk a lot about Cal Farley, who actually promoted Amarillo, but, you know, long yeah. before – Funk Senior took off, took over, and then you had uh, Dutch Mantel, the old time Dutch Mantel. What an ugly guy that was! But this guy, <laughs> I was so impressed because something I, I learned about the for through the Amarillo books, the Amarillo promoters have probably been the nicest. Well, I don't know about nice, but the most generous promoters of any other territory in the world. The people loved Cal Farley when Dutch Mantel took over, and it may have been Cal Farley. Hey guys, we're jumping back in right now. We had a little bit of problem with the connection, so we're back. Scott, you're back on the line. As we cut off before, you were talking about Cal Farley and his impact on Amarillo. Yes, I well, what I was wanting to get across is the book uh, on the books on West Texas that Chris Knight uh, put together. Cal Farley was one of the really the first promoter we've been able to find in Amarillo. And, of course, he passed the torch on to Dutch Mantel, and uh, we sort of wonder if maybe Cal Farley was still uh, running things in the background. Uh, It's sort of hard to tell. And then Doc Sarpolis, and then, of course, Dory Funk Sr. But the thing that jumped out at me more than anything about the West Texas Territory wasn't so much the—I mean, it was the wrestling, because it was great times, but what jumped out at me was how generous every one of the promoters from Cal Farley all the way up were— uh, newspaper reports from the deaths of, it's like you know, the death of Cal Farley, the death of Dutch Mantel, all talked about how generous those people were, and it, that just really struck me. Because uh, generally, when you talk about uh, wrestling promoters, you don't talk about generosity. <laughs> you know, it's more, uh, it's more. Uh, everybody thinks they're taking advantage of them or whatever. But Dutch Mantel, uh, and I'm talking about the an old grizzled uh, wrestler named Dutch Mantel back in the 20s and the 30s, not the one that most people today know. But Dutch Mantel was one of the ugliest guys you would, could ever meet, but he had a heart of gold. And the, you, you just he had a whole front page of the Amarillo Globe Times devoted to him when he died. I mean, the whole front page was, was on him. And it was just amazing. But all it talked about was all he had done for, for the community and for children and uh, of course, that's a, uh, another thing that, uh, you know, goes back to Amarillo. It was like the, Amar- the, uh, the, boys, the boys Ranch. Yeah. Yep. 
And that even carried over into Florida. Eddie Graham picked it up and started promoting the boys' ranch there in uh, in Florida. But uh, the Amarillo promoters are just – I don't know. It, it was just pretty uh, an amazing thing to, to read all this about how generous these people were. That's the big interesting thing is the actual impact of Cal Farley and, and the way he conducted himself. Obviously, a direct influence – I mean, direct – on Dory Funk Sr., which all leads to a direct influence on Eddie Graham. So, so many of the things in terms of the forward-facing to the community things that we saw in Amarillo were things that we saw in Tampa, things that we saw in Florida, because Eddie Graham copied it from what he saw in Amarillo. Yes, absolutely. You know, going back to your books, I mentioned J. Michael Kenyon, and last year, I remember we talked a little bit about your book, The Pro Wrestling Archives, that you uh, put out, The Pro Wrestling, uh, the Wrestling Archive Project, I should say, Volume 1. Volume 2 came out last year. You have a J. Michael Kenyon section in the book, but you also have amazing conversations with Killer Carl Cox, which is extended, and Jackie Fargo. You don't typically see Jackie Fargo interviews in print. No, there's never been one. Jackie... Jackie was one, of, and Don was sort of the same way uh, for a long time. Uh, the, a lot of the guys, somebody asked me this on, uh, I posted a letter from Sam Muchnick that Sam wrote me back in, uh, I guess, 90, 98, 99, something like that. But somebody asked me how it was I got to, the wrestlers to open up in a day when the wrestlers didn't open up to people. Well, Jackie and Don were sort of, the last of the dinosaurs when it came to opening up as far as, you know, talking openly about the business. Uh, I was lucky enough to have been in the business, worked for Nick Goulas in the 70s. So I went up and down the road with a lot of those guys and they all trusted me to talk to me. However, some of them, uh, even in the 90s, you know, they would open, you know, talk to me openly. They'd ask any answer, anything I asked. But a few of them would say, you know, I really don't want this in print. You know, I'll tell you what happened. So I have tons of stories, you know, that guys have told me that uh, that I've actually got. You know, I, I recorded, but I've never released them because they didn't, you know, didn't want me to. Uh, but Jackie and Don, for a long time, they absolutely refused to to open up. I mean, they they would talk to me, but you know, they wouldn't open up to anybody. I had the opportunity to talk with Jackie about. I guess three years before he died. And he told me one day, he says, I'll tell you what, he says, you ask me the questions. I'll tell you the stories. He says, the only thing is I don't want it printed until I'm gone. And that's what I did. I held on to it and it's, you know, he's been gone a couple of years now, but I recently released it in the wrestling archive project. So that's actually the only time Jackie Fargo really opened up uh, to anyone uh, in an extended interview. Don Fargo was the same way for a long time. In fact, it, uh, before we did his book, he had a, I did a shoot interview with him, uh, with my shooting with a legend series. And he starts out, I asked him, okay, let's just, uh, so I said, Don, okay, let's start out from the beginning. When and where were you born? And what does that knucklehead say? He says, well, I was born in Hell's Kitchen, New York. <laughs> I said, okay, I wait a minute, Don. <laughs> I did. I did. That's what I said. You know, of course I was, I had two six packs of beer cooled down in there for him. And, <laughs> you know, his, so he, he was started to drink and, you know, he's, Oh, he, he even looked at me. He says, what do you, do you want me to tell the truth? Or he says, is this case? I said, no, you got to tell me like it is, you know, and that's, that's, it even got further when we, you know, started the book. We, he, I had to really work on him, not work on him, but you know, I had to tell, catch him once in a while, you know, he'd give me the party line, the, you know, what they told the magazines, what they told the, the fans. 
I say, Don, we, we don't need this stuff. I say, you're not, we can't print that kind of thing. And you expect people to believe it because they know it's not true these days. I said, you got to be level with me. And he ended up, you know, he ended up opening up and, uh, you know, explaining things and answering all my questions, you know, it's tr truthfully as, as I figured they were truthful. I'm sure there's a lot of exaggerations. Of course, you know, most wrestlers do exaggerate. So, you know, that was nothing out of the ordinary, but yeah, it was, it was, it was great to, that I had the opportunity to, to, to interview Jackie, because I'd say it all the time. And I, I probably say it every time I do a podcast, when one of the wrestlers dies, if he has never been interviewed in depth by someone, all the history, all the knowledge in his head disappears completely when he dies. That's right. Because those stories, none of those stories were written down. And it's because the business was a secret business. People, the promoters, the wrestlers, they didn't want people to know about the things that, that, that we, you know, that, that they talk about today. They didn't want the, the people to know about the, the things that happened on the road, the crazy things they did, the ribs they pulled in the dressing room. The, how they put together matches, you know, how they talk to each other in the dressing room, all those things. They didn't want any of that out. And because of that, wrestling is one of the worst preserved histories in the world because the only source we really have now are the wrestlers themselves. Newspapers are even bad at times because, you know, I read, get articles in newspapers all the time. They talk about this or they talk about that. And I know it's, it's not true. They were sort of Towing the party line themselves, they, yeah. they they just were printing what they heard or what they thought they they knew, you know. So it, I, that's why I think it's right now it's so important that we talk to as many of these guys as we can because it won't be long before most of them are gone. I agree with you 100. percent That's one of the things I try to do here on this show is just make sure I document as many stories as possible because, like you said, wrestling's so unique. There isn't really any other genre of entertainment or sport or Really anything, when you think about it, politics, whatever people cover, there's nothing where you can go back to the 70s and we still have gaps, giant holes where there's no information, where we don't know exactly what happened. No one else has that. And that's the 70s. If you go back to the, to the 60s, you go back to the 30s, there's still so much information to discover. But again, a lot of that goes into why it's an exciting time right now to really be into wrestling history because we are making these discoveries. We are finding out things we never knew before, seeing clips we never saw before. And of course, you're at the center of this because the books you put out are such a valuable resource to anyone who cares about wrestling history. And on that topic, Scott, what's on the docket for 2018? What do you got coming out from Crowbar Press? Well, probably the first thing that will be out, if it's not the first volume of the Amarillo history, it will be the long-awaited biography on Frankie Kane. Oh, get out of You know, I've actually asked you about this several times in the past because years ago when I was a teenager getting whatever happened to, and God, one day you got to put all of those into one book form. Just those were yeah, so yeah. incredible. And those were such a great resource, again, for anyone who wanted wrestling history. It was the first time we really got to hear the stories directly from the wrestlers with their phone numbers and their addresses attached so you can get in touch with them. But you did an extended edition on just Frankie Kane. Yep. It was maybe the size of three or four issues of whatever happened to you. And it was just on Frankie Kane. So what exactly will this book be? This book will follow the outline of that. Actually, that book was maybe twice. Uh, I, I did a, you know, I, I started with a 12 page, whatever happened to newsletter type thing. And then I evolved it in, uh, with issue 33 into 50 pages. I believe 
the Frankie Kane special edition, I called it. Uh, I believe that was probably close to a hundred. It wasn't much more than maybe two, whatever happened to maybe it was a little bit, but, uh, the, the, the book itself will follow that outline. But since then I have done more than 80 hours of interview work with Frankie and I finally gotten everything I have on audio typed up. So just last week I, I began working on it. I take one or two days a week and I work on that all day long. So I'm hoping that sometime in the next three months, maybe, maybe four, that I'll have Frankie's autobiography uh, actually ready. And I'm telling you, if you like the stories and uh, whatever happened to, you are going to love this because he tells stories like almost nobody else tells. I mean, he just, he has a memory. He's 80 some years old and he has a memory. Uh, he, I mean, he tells it just like it was yesterday. And there's some stories he'll tell and I'll think, this just can't be true, you know, you know, and so I'll go back and check, you know, and it isn't, uh, you know, that he's deliberately lying, you know, some things are, you know, you, you, you remember things incorrectly. Sometimes you, you think, you know, I've had wrestlers tell me, you know, yeah, I went to San Francisco. I was there nine years. Well, come to find out, you know, I checked my records. They were there four years, you know, but it seemed like nine years to them maybe. But so I have to check all this stuff. But invariably when I check Frankie's information, I'd say 90% of the time it's correct. Yeah, he gets things wrong once in a while, but he never tells me anything that's a deliberate falsehood to put himself over. You know, some guys will tell you stories just to make themselves sound good. And every once in a while, Frankie will tell me a story like that. And what I do in that case, I'll wait about six months and I'll call him back. I'll say, Frank, he's, I, I need some more information on a story you mentioned one time. Tell me a story about so-and-so. And he'll tell it every time I've done that, he's told it exactly the same way that he told me the first time, which tells me he's telling the truth, or at least the way he thinks is the truth. He's not just lying because, you know, you, that's what they say about lying. Don't lie because you never remember what you told somebody else. <laughs> yeah. And it's going to change. But, but he doesn't change. He's, you know, he's right down on the money. I'm doing the last, well, the last personal set of interviews with Frankie next uh, I guess it's about a week and a half from today. I'm going down to Mobile to the reunion, but I'm going to spend two days with Frankie, and I've got a slew of questions from all that stuff we t got typed we typed up, and uh, I'm going to be asking him all those questions that you know that came up came to mind during that time. So, and when I get back, I'll be starting on that. I also have, and I can't mention the name right yet, but I've done about sixty percent of the interview work with a big name guy. In fact, this guy is so big that I, I can't mention it, who it is, but I'm not even going to publish it myself. I'm going through another publisher, a uh, bigger wow. name publisher. So, and it's the first time I've done this. I've always kept everything myself, done, you know, published, printing. I do everything myself because I want control. I want it. I don't want somebody monkeying around with my, my the way I write something or taking stuff out because they don't like the way I said something or they, they have a friend they don't want something bad said about. I want it printed the way I want it printed, you know, but this, in this one case, uh, I'm going to be working with somebody else and I'm comfortable with it. Cause he's already, I already, that was one of the stipulations. I asked him, please. I want one thing I would ask is you don't monkey around with what I write. I said, if you've got some editing things you'd like, I welcome his suggestions. I said, but I don't want to be strong armed into having a bunch of changes made. And then I get the book and it's not the book that I submitted. And he was okay with that. So, uh, I'll be talking more about that in the future. 
but I'm real excited about it. I talked to this guy probably an hour and a half, three, four times a week. And we've got, like I said, we've, I've got about 60, 60% of it in the can and, uh, we'll, we're working on the rest of it as time goes on. Oh, I can't wait to hear what that is. Um, I'm, you, you got my interest. <laughs> I'm very curious, but with, <laughs> with Frankie Kane, I think it's such an important thing for people to read. And I haven't read it obviously yet, but I read the previous work you did with him because when you think about the great bookers who are still alive, everyone will mention Bill Watts or Jerry Jarrett, but the great Mephisto, Frankie Kane, may be the best living booker that no one talks about. Absolutely. You talk to any of the wrestlers who worked for Frankie Kane, ask them who is the best booker they ever worked for. Yes, they may mention Watts or whoever, but invariably, if they worked for Frankie, if you ask them specifically what they thought of Frankie Kane as a booker, every one of them will tell you Frankie Kane had the best, one of the best minds in the business. I've heard the same thing about Pat Patterson. So there may be, you know, some correlation. Pat, of course, he didn't punch out promoters, so he got to go. He, you know, <laughs> he went a little bit farther than Frankie did. Yeah. Frankie, you know, he ended up punching out two or three promoters. So, you know, he, he didn't get the book very long. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's what I hear about Frankie most often, that he had the, one of the best minds in the business. And if he had really gotten his due and been given a chance to just book like he wanted, nobody could have stopped him. He was, he was that great. And, and, and that translates into the way he tells his story. That's what I was talking about. You know, I've done probably a hundred some hours of, of uh, recording and he just, he just, I just sit there amazed at, at the stories he tells, you know, and he's got stories with everybody. I mean, Pat Patterson, he told, he told me a story the other day about Nick Bockwinkle and Pat Patterson. They come across, you know, one of those great big giant slides. And he talks about them, the three of them going up the top of the slide and sliding down and what happened. It was a hilarious story. <laughs> but he tells me so many personal stories like that, that it's just, it's not a wrestling book. I mean, there's a lot about wrestling in there. It's a lot about the shooters back in the 40s. You know, he was born in 28 and he was working up uh uh, a kid up in uh, Columbus, Ohio, around 19, well, the whole time, but uh, he start, he learned and got around uh, Al Half's office where Buddy Rogers was at Frankie Caliber, all the old time wrestlers. And he became friends with a lot of them in the, in the mid thirties to late thirties. And he tells fascinating stories about shooting and the guys, uh, who are the great shooters, who are some of the toughest uh, shooters that he ever met. And it's just, it's just a fascinating read all the way around. And I'm not just putting it over because, because Frankie and I, I'm doing it with him, but it's just, I don't know, it's just one of the best things I've ever re really come across. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to uh, request an advanced copy <laughs> right now publicly here on the okay. air. But um, Scott, sure. when it comes to some of the other books you put out in 2017, of course, you did the classic Arena Programs, Volume 1, Slamogram, your fantastic programs from Nick Goulas in the 70s. And you also did, we talked about those, uh, the great wrestling cities. You did the greatest wrestling ever in the history of Nashville, which is your first volume of Nashville results. You mentioned Volume 2. On those two areas, the classic arena programs and the great wrestling cities, what do you expect coming in 2018? Uh, the cities, uh, besides the Amarillo and Alabama books, uh, I do plan, I'm hoping to have the second volume of Nashville done this year. Uh, I'm, I've got it pretty much done. I, I haven't got a, uh, everything together for 1980 yet, but I've got to, once I get uh, every, that done, then I've just got to go through and just start really digging, be sure I've got everything in there that I want. Uh, besides that, uh, I, I do have plans to do a book on St. Louis that'll be just like the Madison Square Garden book. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I can't wait to do that one. My, you know, I retired two, two years ago, and when I did, I thought, 
you know what? I'm going to get all these projects done. I've got so much time now that I'm retired, but <laughs> I've taken on so many projects. I mean, right now I've got a good 10 books on the drawing board in, in one form or another. Uh, another book I'll tell you about, and I, I wasn't going to mention it, but Nikita Brezhnikov, I'm sure you, you've heard the name. He managed uh, Nikita. Nikolai uh, I mean, Volkov. Uh, Nikolai Volkov, yeah. Yeah. He wrote a book from 1970 to 1980, I think it ends, on WWWF wrestling. He talks about every important match that happened in Baltimore, Madison Square Garden, and a lot of the smaller cities. He talks about the wrestlers, the things that happened. It is a, an unbelievable overview of the WWWF during that, that decade. I mean, you just wouldn't believe he has matches that he actually lays out the finish for, for, uh, of the matches for all the, a lot of those different cities. And he explains how it, it, they all relate to something else or how, you know, how, what happened to the wrestler, you know, things that he experienced as a fan, because he was a fan in Baltimore, you know, in the early seventies. And he experienced, he talks about all the things that he saw and the things that happened with the wrestlers. And it's just a, I, when he first approached me with it, I said, I appreciate it. I said, but I have no interest in the WWF in the 70s whatsoever. He says, well, let me send it to you anyway and see what you think. And I read it and I was fascinated because it's really a cool, if you were a fan of the Triple WF in the 70s, you will absolutely be taken back by the memories in this book. I mean, it is, it's just great. And I don't I mean to gush on about it, but it's a book worth gushing about, I guess. <laughs> well, if you're gushing about it, I'm sure that means the rest of us will be as well. When do you anticipate that one will be ready? I don't You wouldn't believe how long it is. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's huge. <laughs> and, I, and I'm trying to work my way through it now, you know, because I, I, I do some editing and uh, chopping, and he's good with everything I've done so far. And so I've just got to work my way through it. I'm hoping by the end of the year we'll have it pretty close to, you know, a completion date. So. I did find out one thing that's that's interesting in this book that I'm publishing with through some other company. They told me that once I submit it to them, it'll be about a year before it's published. Whoa! And that's gonna wear me out. Yeah. I mean, I I want this thing out, but me when I finish a book, it's out. You know, when I finish it, when I get the layout done, I, I send it to the printer and I have it within two to three weeks. But regular publishers, I never realized this. But when they get a book finished, it takes a good year for everything they have to do with the marketing, the whatever else it is they do before they get it out. And that just blows me away. I couldn't stand it if I was publishing all these books and had to wait a year before they, you know, of course, I don't sell in the bookstores. Like, you know, they got to take care of all that, get it in their catalogs and that kind of thing. So I don't have the all the details they have to take care of. But uh, that's just something I learned uh, from this <laughs> just blew me away. I even asked the guy, I said, if I do a layout and everything, which I may, uh, I said, if I do the layout and everything for you, or your company doesn't have to do anything except print it. I said, can it be out sooner? He says, no, he said, it'll still take the same, same amount of time. Wow. <laughs> Certainly the benefits of operating crowbar press means you can put out whatever you want, whenever you want. So uh, you see that That's right there. It. That's one of the reasons I keep it in the house. You know, I keep everything in the house because I want it published the way I want it. I want it to look a certain way. I don't, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want uh, somebody else monkey, like I said, monkeying with what I write. And I don't want to monkeying with the layout. You know, I don't want to, I like my books to be tight. I like to, there'd be very little wasted space in, in the, on the pages. I like a smaller font. Uh, I, I have had a few people tell me it's a little small, 
they have a little, since they're older, it's a little harder to read, but that's what they make glasses for. And I can give them more for their money. You know, I, it's like a wrestling archive project. I don't know if you, I, I have to check sometimes, just see how many words is in that thing. But that book, if you put a normal size font on those letters, that book would probably be 650, 700 pages. I mean, it's already packed as it is. <laughs> it's really, really a packed book. Yeah. So, I mean, I like giving people as much for their money as I can. You know, I don't want to put out a book that's just great big fonts and, you know, six letters on each page and, and, and a picture, you know. Uh, I don't want that. I want the, the thing to be filled with as much information crammed in there as I can get. Well, Scott, look, that's one thing you're totally good at, which is making sure that the people who purchase from Crowbar Press get their money's worth. And on that topic, as we wrap things up, let the listeners know a little bit about Crowbar Press beyond what we've said so far and how they can get in touch with Crowbar Press and purchase your books. All right. Crowbar Press is uh, located in Gallatin, Tennessee. Most people think I got this huge building with all kinds of employees and 100 parking spaces for all the employees, but it's just me operating out of a little 12 by 12 bedroom in my house. <laughs> it's there, I do everything from the, the, the interviews to the writing, the typing, the printing. Oh, I, I take the back. I, so the only thing I don't have done is the printing. I do everything else. I accept the shipments and take the orders, take them to the post office. I do everything else. And I have a bald, I love, I love what I do. And uh, you can find me real easy at crowbarpress.com. And uh, I have information on there about all my books, DVDs, uh, posters, that kind of thing. There he is, Scott Teal, the man behind Crowbar Press. And with that, I guess we should go directly right to Book of the Week. Book of the Week. And this week's Book of the Week is Drawing Heat by Jim Friedman. And, of course, you can get this at crowbarpress.com. It's on Crowbar Press. It's a pretty famous book. came out originally in 1988. Drawing Heat was one of the first books to give the public a glimpse behind the scenes of the world of professional wrestling. It goes into the story of the Bear Man. And it goes into a lot of the story of Canadian wrestling history. Of course, the Bear Man, Dave McKigney, was in the car with Adrian Adonis when they died together in the same crash, July 4th, 1988. That's one of the great wrestling books. And it really is a look at a, a completely unknown and, and not often talked about territory. It does remind me of an odd uh, trivia fact. That horrible accident that uh, took place that took the lives of Adonis and uh, McKigney and one of the Kelly twins. Did you know that the bear was driving? Okay, okay. That's not even funny. Let's, let's not. Let's not uh, well, once again, the book, our book of the week, Drawing Heat. I, I may be mistaken on that. By I, I Jim swear. Friedman. Will you stop over there? You've turned me into monsoon. Drawing Heat by Jim Friedman. You may have heard Greg Oliver mention it last week on the show. Well, now it's our book of the week. Once again, go to crowbarpress.com. A lot of really good stories in here about the Sheik also. So once again, crowbarpress.com. But for everything else you need, books, music, movies, denim. I always throw denim in there. Anything else, you can go to amazon.com, of course. But if you use our referral link, it really helps to show out. And of course, that link, tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon. By using that link, you don't do anything different than you would normally do. You just enter that link. Anything you put in your cart from that point forward, we get a little bit of love from the people at Amazon for. So it's a great way of supporting this show. We don't hit you with a bunch of bullshit ass. This is the show that doesn't condescend. And you can support this show by going to tinyurl.com slash superpod. 
Amazon. Lots of other shows have links they want you to use. Lots of other shows with no effort, bad audio, bad hosts, no good interviews, no good interview ability, no distribution, bad logos, bad everything want you to support their shows. You need to ask yourself, which show should I support? Which show actually says we care about the listeners and we want to put as much effort in as possible to make it a good experience for the listeners? I think if you think about it for about five seconds, the answer will be obvious when it comes down to it when it comes down to them or us fuck those guys support the super podcast support your super podcast the mothership (laughs) well there we go uh all right audio tune scott cornish is here but with that let's now go to part two of my discussion with dr d david schultz once again i want to mention here that dr d's new book don't call me fake the real story of dr d david schultz by dr d with john cosper is available now by going to tinyurl.com slash superpod amazon and everywhere else that you get your favorite wrestling books i believe it's also available at crowbarpress.com but pick up a copy don't call me fake the real story of dr d david schultz with that said let's go to part two of my talk with the doctor right now you trained with herb welch but oh yeah when you started was roy still alive when you started with nicholas yes yes roy was still alive and uh then he kind of transferred it over to Christine Jarrett and Jerry Jarrett, his mother. And then Buddy Fuller was in there somewhere, too, which is Ron Fuller's dad, Robert Fuller's dad. And I, I think he was kind of in there with them. And then Speedy Hatfield and uh, other guys down in Pensacola. Uh, Don Fields Brothers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fields, Don Fields and Lee Fields and all them. They were all in the same uh, I'd say family group like they may not have been blood family, but they all come up the same time in the wrestling area there, you know. And uh, then they had Tojo there that was real close with everybody there with Jerry and you know. But Christine Jerry really run most of the show for Roy Welch. I don't know what the connection there was. I heard what the connection was, but I don't want to spill it. Somebody will tell one day. Yeah, actually, but, it's been told here on this show. <laughs> I, oh, okay, okay. I, I had then a, you, okay. Christine Jarrett's but, grandson, Brennan, was on, and it, it's the family's opinion, or at least some of the family, that Christine yep. and Roy had a long-term relationship. That's right. And then along came Jerry. You're Jerry. Well, that's another rumor. <laughs> <laughs> but they was, uh, you know, it was all kind of, you can do all kind of things, but, you know, but it, it's, uh, you know, Nick Gulas always treated me okay. It wasn't great. I mean, you know, I made a living, but you got a lot of experience because Nick Gulas bring in a lot of different guys, but you had to, you know, prove yourself to Nick. Nick wanted people to get out there and, He'd come out and say, boy, I don't know what you're going to do with all that money you made last week. You made $300. What are you going to do with it? Yeah, I spent 200 on fuel. (laughs) But, I mean, you know, if you made that kind of money back then, it was good, you know. And uh, then, I mean, it was a hard road, man. I mean, you had to to say, I mean, we used to work Memphis. Let me tell you, we worked Tupelo, Mississippi on Friday night. We drive to Memphis, do Memphis TV early, 9 o'clock. We get in the car and drive to Birmingham, do Birmingham TV at 1 o'clock. 
drive from Birmingham to Chattanooga, do Chattanooga TV at 5 o'clock, and then work Chattanooga House at night, and then drive back to Jackson, Tennessee. Wow. That's a long way. Every week. And you had to be there. A lot of times you had to jump in the car with a sweatsuit on and drive to get there, you know, to make the TV and all, you know. And, uh, but that's what, that's what it took. I mean, if you couldn't do it, they'd get somebody else to do it. And, you know, I didn't have no trouble doing it. It's just awful when you leave, when you leave home though, with $25, $30, you probably can get back and got 10 (laughs) after getting paid. So, (laughs) but that's what you get when you start out. You got to pay your dues and, you know. I was talking with a guy the other day, Steve Austin, and uh, he was telling me about how he did all that Tennessee thing. And I said, well, you know what I'm talking about. He said, yes, sir, brother, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, he was telling me about eating potatoes, uh, you know, raw potatoes and crackers and stuff because you couldn't couldn't afford anything else. You know, you're trying to make a living and gas one fifty cents a gallon. <laughs> Did he tell you the Dutch but, Mantel quote uh, with that when Jerry Jarrett had a locker room meeting and he said to the guys, none of you guys on steroids, don't do steroids. And Dutch Mantel said, steroids? We can't even afford food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Dutch and me was partners for about a, a year down there in Memphis. But he, oh, he's right, though. Yeah, at that time, it was, uh, you know, I was lucky. I, I mean, you know, I was fortunate that. I was able to talk and back up my talk, and I wasn't scared of nobody. I never have been scared of anybody, you know. And a guy with a gun, if I can see him and get close enough to him, I'll try to make him eat that gun. If I can see him and get close enough, you know, anybody can be stopped. But, you know, a lot of guys are, yeah, yeah, the gun, he's right there. Well, if you got that close to get a hold of that gun, you should have took it away from him, you know. But, you know, it, it's it's just who you got and how they feel. I mean, I've probably been sued for over uh, $100 million in wrestling, just wrestling. And, you know, from fans that climb up into the ring and want to fight. And when I hit them, knock them out, they fall out of the ring onto the floor, and then they want to sue me. Yeah, they go to their lawyer and they say, I was sitting there minding my own business. Yeah. And this bad yeah. guy wrestler just punched me in the face for no reason. Oh, yeah. I've had that happen a lot, man. Yeah. And they say, well, what was you, uh, how'd you get in the ring and all that blood on you? Well, uh, I don't know. I woke up and I was all bloody and in the ring. Yeah, right. They get in that ring and they don't realize <laughs> what it's going to do to them when they, wait, when they look up and see all these people looking at them. They kind of freak out. They say, oh, what am I doing here? And about that time, I'm coming from Mama's house with a right to try to, you know, wake him up a little bit to reality. So, (laughs) and uh, plus Canada, Nova Scotia, all them places, man. I always had a rough time, you know, getting back to the cars and I, my car, they cut my tires, bust my windows. That's the sign of a great heel. That's that's the trophy of a great heel. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's why, that's the reason I drove an old car all the time. I didn't, I mean, you know, I didn't go buy a brand new car. I drove an old car that I could park a block away. Nobody knows it's my car. And, uh, you know, it's just, the way they they think they're harming you when they scratch your car with a key and all that. But there's been a lot of things. They tried to kidnap my daughter in Canada what? when she went to oh yeah when she was going to elementary school up there, and they called the RCMP and caught the people. And uh, it was just a bunch of teenagers that got together and was going to try to kidnap her. And uh, you worked all over Canada. What part of Canada was that in? 
uh, out of Calgary. I stayed in Calgary three years. And I was yeah. in Nova Scotia. One year, one season, about six or six months, I guess, there in Nova Scotia. And then from there, I went to Calgary, and I stayed there three years. Great place, man. Love that. I love Calgary. I mean, I did then. Ain't no telling what it is now, though. Well, I understand. You know, I was talking to Brad Hart the other day, and he said, you need to come up. I said, hell, I want to know where to go. It's all changed, you know, so big. But beautiful, beautiful. Place. I had a good time, man, for three years. Made good money. And we sold out more times than I was talking to Bruce. And Bruce said, yeah, David, you was a, you was a top heel, one of the best that ever come in here. And stayed three years. And, you know, and, you know, it was a great place, man. You did a lot of miles, but you had a good time, you know. Yeah, but how and, scary uh, were some of those bus trips? <laughs> I, never, I never got on any of them buses. I drove my own car. <laughs> every trip, every day, I was in my own car. And I'd take a couple of guys with me, like Cuban Assassin uh, or Terry Brown, somebody. I had regular guys that ride with me. And on that trip, you know, we had our regular routes and everything, and they loved it because... You know, I went, I mean, the band, you'd see the band coming, have about 20 people in it, heads sticking out the windows, half of them. If Dynamite Kid was there, it'd be shaving somebody's head when they went to sleep. <laughs> they'd wake up, they wake up and rejoin and their ball hit it. <laughs> and uh, oh, a lot of a lot of joking going, oh, by the way, a lot of jokes in that book I'm telling people about, too. Once again, the book, Don't Call Me yep. Fake, the real story of Dr. D. David Schultz with Dr. D. and John Cosper. Yep, that's uh, that's absolutely true, those things in there. And uh, my wife said, I don't know if y'all told them boys would be mad at you, all of them running around there, never know what happened when it happened, and now they'll know. But uh, they deserved it. You know, a lot of times people deserve what they get. And uh, I kind of, you know, they try to, I mean, they get me first. Don't get don't get me wrong. I come out in, in Canada, the trip was so long and so cold. You go in, if you've got a cup of coffee sitting there, and you go to the restroom and you come back out where your coffee's sitting, don't drink that coffee because you'll probably go in la-la land. And I mean, it's nothing that's going to kill you or anything, but I assure you, if you left that coffee sitting there, somehow it gets contaminated. So they got me one night. I accidentally left this coffee there. I mean, it didn't hurt me. I just, you know, I needed something in it. And I said, okay, that's it. So then I started my revenge tactics, and it went on for I don't know a couple months, and wow, it was funny. You'll 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 hear about it. You'll read about it in the book, and it's funny. And Peggy, my wife, said, "Will you stop doing that?" I said, "Nope, I will not." So they haven't been paid, to, you know. But that's uh, you know, they uh, you know, you got to pay your dues. I mean, if somebody does something, you can't let them get by with it. And they said, "Revenge is mine," saith the Lord. Well, that's right, that is. But revenge is mine too, saith Doctor D. <laughs> that's a good yeah. t-shirt right there you should make that that's right that's, that's right they said oh my god there you come with another one you know but overall overall i did i did fantastic you know i've got uh a nice little compound here and i got a couple more little compounds around many compounds but this is my compound here i'm way out in the woods and uh i got security gates and fences and dogs everywhere and you know i, I shoot about once or twice a week target practice down through here the the law used to come out here because i was shooting such big caliber shells and now they don't even pay attention to it no more. they get a call they say oh that's david 
<laughs> but I mean, it's legal to do where I'm at, you know, but they just uh, scare people, man. Especially when I do it at three o'clock in the morning. Well, that'll do it. <laughs> well, I want to wake them up. I want them to know I'm here, you know. <laughs> but it, it, it's kind of funny, people, you know, they, uh, you know, I'd hate to know. I just can't, I can't fathom going out on the street and being scared of somebody. And I can't, I can't even begin to think about my wife and kids going out with me and I can't protect them. You know, it, it's something I've always prided myself on that they don't have to worry about anything. And there are several things I should have brought up with Costner about that, but I decided not to because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, he's a, he's a mean old guy. And he's, yeah, right. I'm a mean old guy, right? I just, uh, I was up, I was in Poland for three years and I worked as an engineer for Sikorsky Aircraft. Wow. Yeah, the helicopter people, yeah. right? So we was up there, my daughter come up to visit, uh, you know, I brought him over her, her husband, and one kid, she was pregnant with the second one. So we stopped at a McDonald's over there, which they do have McDonald's in Poland, too, and there was a guy in there that didn't like Americans at all, and he was running his mouth, looking at us, and I told my son-in-law, I said, I'm going to the van. You get the stuff bringing on out there. So the guy followed me out, and he come to the van, and he's standing at the window, and I rolled down the window, and he told me, he said, hey, F you Americans. And my daughter was in the back seat, my wife, and I was sitting there, and my grandson was back there. So I come from Mama's house and hit him so hard, right in the mouth and the nose. He started backpedaling, hit a car, slid down to the ground. And, you know, to show you what kind of mindset my daughter and wife was, they said, Daddy, leave him alone. Don't hit him no more. <laughs> and, and my wife, Peggy, said, David, will you stop? Like, why don't you just stop? Don't beat him up. And this guy going outside McDonald's, my son-in-law finally got a big guy like me. And we started out the road. He's standing over the big old machete knife night. So I stopped the van, jumped out of the van, started running towards his car. He threw the machete in the car and took off. I was going to take the knife. I wanted to keep it, you know, for a souvenir. So. Yeah. And the police came and they said, oh, we know who you're talking about. You know, I mean, their license system, their law systems and all that are so far behind that, you know, they, don't, they didn't have all the updates. You couldn't give them a license plate and they find somebody. It's like that license plate may not even exist in Poland anywhere. But, you know, it was uh, several things like that, you know. They, uh, that's, I mean, I'm trying to say that my wife and daughter did not worry a bit. I mean, they're eating French fries and sucking milkshakes down. I said, there, will you quit? Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and this big guy's looking in the window, and I rolled it down, and I just happened to have that free punch come in and hit him. And yeah, I thought it was great, man. He hit the car, <laughs> slid down to the floor, kind of like cartoons, you know. And, uh, but, yeah, oh, yeah. And most people, you know, they're having to say, oh, my God, call us, call us, you know. No, uh-uh. The French fries are getting cold, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, worst, yeah, there's man. nothing worse than cold French fries. That's the that's the that's problem. right. That's what I was. That's what I was thinking. Too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, uh, there was another time and uh, we was on vacation. I took them on vacation in Canada. We went somewhere. A restaurant was sitting there, and these two guys, pretty big guy, and they were drinking. And we was in a restaurant, giving the waitress a hard time. 
lot of people up there, you know, they're out to have a, a quiet meal, Canada, worked all week, and everything, family place. I finally, you know, I said, you guys need to calm down and keep quiet, or y'all need to come outside with me. Oh, okay, you want to go outside? Let's go. So they got up and started walking outside, and I told Peg, I'll be back next. She said, oh, my God. Remember, bail bondsman, long way off, have to go to court. <laughs> I said, yeah, I remember. I walked outside and talked to them a few minutes and uh, said a few things to them, and they marched right back in, got their stuff, and left. And I come back and sat down, and people gave me a, like a clap standing ovation on what they left, you know. And Peggy said, what'd you tell them? Uh, they think I'm the head of the police and the detective squad here or whatever. I don't know how they got that idea, but you know, <laughs> and I, as I was going in behind them, I said, damn, these pretty big boys, man. But I told one of them, I said, I'm going to knock you out first and I'm going to get you next and you're going to get beat so bad. Your mama ain't going to know you. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, you. And I, I intimidated them a little bit and kind of, I looked out what I did. And uh, and walking in, though, they were big boys. And I told my wife, I I don't know. They just, I, they wanted to leave. She said, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> I mean, stuff like that always happened to me. If I sat down and tried to figure it out, I'd probably have 50 times that things like that happened to me. <laughs> Was it, a, it yeah. all dependent on the length of your hair? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, when my hair was down over my shoulders, you know, uh, and my beard, they just, uh, I don't know. It's something about me that nobody, like a bar. I never go into bars. I've never had a beer in my life. Wow. Never drank a beer in my life. Cheppers. I drank a little cognac every once in a while, like a anniversary or something. You know, I'll take one shot of that, and then I can't walk. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like I don't drink, you know, and I never did. So, uh, and I tell people that they say you never drink. <laughs> yeah, no, never drank. I said every once in a while, my wife would say, "Hey, it's anniversary. You want to take a shot of cognac tonight? I'll buy a small bottle." And I said, "I don't need no small bottle. Small bottle lasted me ten years." And I'd get one little shot. I'm talking about one like in on gun smoke or something, right? And I try to take it down. <laughs> I can't walk to the kitchen, man. I'm sitting there. Oh, I said, my God, how do people drink that stuff? And uh, she said, it is bad, ain't it? I said, yeah, but, you know, oh, I don't know. If you were a bounty hunter 100 years ago, you'd be in the West taking shots like that all day. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's what I was thinking. Them guys, they throw yeah. it down, throw it down, and get on that horse and ride off. <laughs> <laughs> Here, I can't walk to the kitchen. <laughs> and, and, I mean, I ain't even got a thimble full of heart, baby. That's what my wife said. <laughs> what, are you some kind of baby? I said, I guess so. I guess so. That is, you know. And then, after, you know, I have a little bit. I mean, I'm talking about a little shot glass, right? And, you know, I just, I can't take two. I, I mean, I don't know if I ever drank two or not. If I did, I can't remember. So that tells you something. I probably passed out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I'm always in my home, in my house, watching TV or something when I do that. Good. I don't I don't ever go out of the house after that. You know, I mean, I don't even want to go. I, I can't go out. Yeah. I mean, people laugh at me when I tell them that. They say, is that all you can drink? I will, Yeah. Now, when I was a kid, we used to go get moonshine because we couldn't afford nothing. That would be four of us, and we'd all put in a quarter piece by a half pint moonshine. But we'd have to have a six-pack of Coke, Coca-Cola, 
to push that moonshine down when you drink a, you know, and then it burned all the way down to your toes. Yeah. And I guess that's what happened to me. I said, my God, oh, you know, but that was some strong stuff, man. And, oh, boy. You know, but we had a good time, had a good time, good life. Ain't got no complaints, just a few, but uh, ain't nothing nobody can do about it. And they'll come out in the second book probably, and maybe they'll get on to the market before, Anybody has time to squash them? <laughs> yeah. Hey, I wanted to ask you, Dr. D, you know, um, Dennis Condry was a part of some really great tag teams. Him and Phil Hickerson were outstanding. Him and Bobby yep. Eaton were outstanding. But a lot of people overlook you and Dennis Condry, who were a tremendous tag team. And, in fact, one of the very first, if not the first, music videos in pro wrestling was a music video of you and Dennis Condry to the theme of, I think it was the instrumental version of Sheik's Good Times. It was a really, really That's cool right. video. Tell me about teaming with Dennis Condry. What was that like? And also, how good was he in the ring? Dennis is very good. Very good. Uh, mechanically inclined, you know, as far as uh, timing and knowing how to uh, work the people. And me, you know me, I was excellent. And talking, I was excellent. I guess all excellent for me. And uh, I was the biggest coward you ever seen. But I was the <laughs> toughest coward you ever seen. I mean, according to the people, you yeah. know. And, and we had we had a great tag team. Uh, Phil Hickerson, Dennis Condry, and me was always close. Phil is from Jackson, Tennessee. He's from Jackson, Tennessee, and Dennis is from Alabama over there. And uh, I talked to Dennis, I, I don't know, three or four months ago, and I talked to Phil about three or four months ago. But you know, they um, we was always we always had a good time. And we didn't bother nobody. We stayed by ourselves. But Dennis was great, man, in the ring. We knew what each one was going to do. And we know how to get the people. We know when to draw the referee. And we knew how to get heat. We just got too much heat. Because uh, Phil and Dennis came to Nova Scotia when I was up there that year. I had to get them out of the ring with a hockey stick a couple times. <laughs> that the people wouldn't let them leave. And I had to, I had to push a couple people with a hockey stick or swing at a couple of people with a hockey stick. But I cleared away for them and got them out of there because they didn't have nothing in the ring to take yourself with. And, you know, up there you're wrestling hockey arenas, and there's all kind of hockey sticks laying around. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Dennis is a heck of a guy, man. We had a good run in Tennessee, Nashville, Florida. And Phil, Phil kind of got out of it back then, became a radio announcer down in Jackson, Tennessee. And he just retired last year, I think, 20 years on the radio. Phil Hickerson. Yep. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, Phil was a big shot down here. Uh 106.9 Jackson, Tennessee. And wow. he just <laughs> he just retired from that over 20 years. And uh, you know, he was uh he just kind of got out of it, you know. He he didn't and you know, we all were saying we was always going to get out of it, but Dennis stayed on. Dennis still working, I think. He's doing a lot of uh autograph shows and stuff like that he told me but uh you know it, it was always a good team we had you know uh, me and dennis always got along good we had several titles yeah and then he got with bobby eaton uh, and then he, he went with the midnight express or, or something you know i went my way i was up in canada and japan and different places you know and then i got into bounty hunting up there and i just kind of lost track of Everybody, everything. And uh, I go to some of these uh, conventions, and it's always somebody at a convention wants to try, you know. You know, they want to push your button and get you, you know. I had one of the nasty boys come up. Uh, I was in New York City, and he come up and said, are you an old man? I said, yeah, show him. And who are you? 
He said, I'm uh, so-and-so nasty boys. And I said, yeah, what do you need? He said, well, I don't need nothing. I just thought maybe I'd come over here and slap the hell out of you. He said that said, to you? Well, Get the hell out of here. Yeah. What? Yeah, and I told him, I said, well, you know what? There ain't nothing between us but air, man. And I'm not going to block your punch or anything. You go ahead and take your best punch. At that time, Ric Flair and different ones over there in, in the auditorium, you'd hear say, oh, shit, y'all get over there, Doc's beating me the hell out of somebody. <laughs> so I sat there and told him, I said, you go ahead, take your best punch, but remember this. Once you take your best punch, it's my turn, and I'm going to beat you so damn bad, boy, your mama would never recognize you again. <laughs> and he said, well, maybe I won't even bother the old man. I guess get the hell out of my way. Kind of pushed him aside and walked off, and he's still mumbling. But he stayed where he was, you know. And uh, these young guys, you know, they want to try you. They want to be the one who hit Doctor D or beat Doctor D. I had one guy like that one time. I said, "I tell you what, I do. You beat me. I'll let you beat me tonight. I'll lay down in the ring, let you beat me, and you'll be the one that beats Doctor D. And you can have the belt and everything. You know, it's yours. Everything's yours." He said, "Why would you do that?" I said, "Well, you ain't seen shit, man." There's going to be so many people after your ass. Uh, you know, it's like the old gunslinger, you know, get beat. Everybody wants you there and the guy that beat you. But he, I told him, I said, hey, you're going to have people come out of the woodwork for you. If you beat me, they'll say, oh, man, he beat Doc. He beat Doc in the raw. I ain't that tough. I'm going to kick his ass, you know. And he said, well, maybe I don't want to beat you. I said, well, that's a good decision there, buddy. See you later, bye. <laughs> but people don't understand that when you get a reputation like that, you always got somebody trying to beat you, and they take it to heart. You're giving your body to them to let them do whatever they're going to do with you. But when they try to take advantage of you, you turn it around, separate their shoulder, dislocate their knee or whatever, or bust their eye wide over the headbutt and accident and. Then they get mad at you and say, uh, you know, oh, man, he accidentally did that. He didn't mean that. No, are you okay? Yeah, right. But, you know, you always got to be on your toes because everybody, everybody's after you. Everybody wants to beat you, unless it's the top guys. They don't want to beat you. Like Rick Flair. I never had no problem with him, man. We always got along good, man. Uh, Hogan, we never had no problem except Hogan thought I was going to beat him all the time because I would make it rough on him in the ring, you know. But, you know, the top guys are not trying to prove anything. They don't want any recognition about being tough or anything because they got to work with everybody. And that's the way I was. I had to work with everybody. You know, I, I mean, no matter who they sent in, I had to work with them. You know, Harley Race, uh, Rick Flair, uh, Punks, Fargos, whoever they can, I had to work with them. And I wouldn't, uh, I mean, me to beat them wouldn't do anything for me or anything for my reputation. All they do is make me an asshole, you know, yeah. and I, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not about that. I was about money, making money. That's what I did. And I was good at it. And, uh, I made promoters and professional wrestling a whole bunch of money. Never got my share, but made them a bunch. <laughs> hey, you mentioned the Fargos. Did you ever get to work with Roughhouse? Oh yeah. Yeah. Roughhouse. A lot of times with Jackie and Roughhouse in Memphis. What was that Nashville. Like? Oh, it was it was a good show. He was a, he was a good show. I mean, yeah. he, and Jackie wasn't any problem at all. He was funny cartoon guy, and Roughhouse. You just uh, you know you laugh at him half the time. Uh, it was just a show. And but when they got in the ring with people that wasn't experienced or they knew or whatever, they could make it rough on them. You know, Jackie was pretty good. Uh, 
he was pretty good wrestler if he wanted to be, you know. And but he he liked to just you know strut across the ring. He told me one time, that's the best way to do. It. I don't have to take no punches or nothing. I go in there and just mess around a little bit, do a strut across the ring, and you know. And I said, well, I guess so. If you can do, get away with it, you know. I mean, I remember one time Jimmy Snooker and me went thirty minutes in Landover, Maryland, never touched each other. And 30 minutes had gone by before the bail run. And the people were standing up trying to, uh, you know, just doing little gimmick things, you know. I'd scoot out of the ring, and he'd come at me, I'd get back in, go out the other side, and then I'd come in. I mean, you know, it's just getting time in. And I think we went an hour that night, but 30 minutes before we touched each other. But that's what you call uh, good entertainment, good workers, good guys, and, uh, you know, there ain't many of them left out there. I'll tell you what I see on TV today. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Man, I don't know. I, I don't know where it's going. It's going somewhere. And then I say that and I look up and it's one of the largest gross TV receipts and videos and all that stuff there is, you know. And uh, still going up. I don't know how or why, but, you know, I guess a bunch of kids inherited a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. Hey, Dr. D, yeah, my, my timeline may be off a little bit, but I think you okay. you and Dennis Condry went into Southeastern for Ron Fuller right after that split. Because I think you were working for Goulas uh, up until Ron had the issue where Bob Roop and several wrestlers defected, tried to take over the office. That didn't work. And then ran opposition and really killed Knoxville for a number of years. But right around this time, you went in to work for Ron Fuller. What was that period of time like? What did you heard about what Bob Roop had tried to pull before you got there? And what was it like being in the middle of a promotional war? Well, it, you know, it didn't bother me because Bob Roop never impressed me uh, too much. I never had any dealings with him. I guess that's the reason. But, you know, Ronnie Garvin was there and uh, Ron Fuller, he put me and Dennis together. And uh, we never uh, we never seen any of that war between them. So we always thought it was a big game with them, big work. You know, we thought Nick knew all about this. Jarrett knew all about this. Ron, they're all in the same family, you know. Ron Fuller, Buddy Fuller, all of them. And we just never worried about that. That was nothing to us, you know. And then when we went back with Nick, and then Jerry Jarrett made the split with Nick, we thought that was all a big game. Hmm. And it was just to, you know, just make, just Jerry Jarrett and Nick Goose were still together, but they were saying they split apart. But I think it was something to do with uh, territorial lines and all this, and Nick didn't want to give this up, or that didn't want to give up. And George. Just think, and he wanted George yeah. to be pushed heavy in Memphis, and Jerry. Oh, Jones my God, yeah. Yeah, poor Georgie boy. <laughs> Good work his way out of a wet paper bag. He told me one day, said, I'm going to tell my daddy that you don't want to do this move with me. I said, yeah. Go ahead, George. You tell him whatever you want. Nick, George got something to tell you. He come on and say, "Boy, why don't you want to do that move with him?" I said, "I'll do it with him." Tim, come on out there. We'll do it. And George said, "No, I ain't gonna do it because he'll mess up. He'll do something to hurt me." I said, "Yeah, well, probably." And him and Vern <laughs> Ganya, Vern Ganya's son, Greg Ganya. Yeah. Greg Ganya and George Goulas are exactly alike. Really? Both of them. Yeah, both of them. I mean, I think Greg might have been able to work a little more than George, but I don't know. It's, uh, you know, uh, Greg Ganya, I don't know, and George Goulas, that's all I can think of. Greg Ganya, I think of one, I think of the other. 
Daddy's going to do this. Daddy's going to do that. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. And, uh, you know, Byrne was a hell of a guy, though. I mean, he treated me good, and he had respect for people, and he treated people good. And, you know, we had a few words before I left, but, you know, I told him, I said, Byrne, you're too old, man. I don't think you can throw me out of the TV. I'm glad he didn't try, because he probably would have thrown me out on my damn head. <laughs> he was still know. pretty tough. But, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I told him, I said, you can't throw me out, and I was thinking, Oh, what the hell did I just do? And I kept, uh, you know, and he said, well, and then Greg jumped up and said, I'll throw him out. I said, somebody grab that kid before I kill him or beat him to death or whatever. You know, and anyway, that was all that was Burn, but uh, Burn was a hell of a guy, treated me great. And, uh, you know, I'm just glad he didn't want to throw me out because I assure you, he could have thrown me out. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, he was a tough uh, joker, man, Burn. And, uh, you know, after you kill that guy in a nursing home, I don't know. He, they wanted to lock him up, and they said he had dementia or something. Didn't know what he was doing. And so that shows that was good. That was good news for me, though. Yeah. That shows when I when I get dementia and get old, I'll remember what to do. <laughs> yeah, hurt right. people. <laughs> yeah. Everything hurt once taught you will come back. <laughs> That's right. We'll come right back. That means you got that old time memory. You know, you go, oh yeah, I remember. Here you go. But, uh, yeah, I tell you, it was great, man. Wrestling was, you know, I mean, that was my life until bounty hunting. And then it became my second life. And then I was in Poland for three years working for Coach Garrett. That was the greatest job I ever had. I mean, to be able to run two aircraft plants for three years. And I guess the reason it was great is nobody spoke English. <laughs> How was the food in Poland? Oh, it was great. Beautiful country. Let me tell you, it's one of the best places I've ever been for country, the castle, the old school stuff, the old Christ and Jesus and stuff all through there and how the country kept getting took over by other countries and uh, that's a beautiful it's beautiful country, beautiful and cheap, everything's cheap, Poland's cheap you can go over and get a hotel room $35 a night eat some of the best food you've ever eaten, you go to the market uh, you know, all the towns have little markets you know, and all the stuff is brought in that morning from the farms, the neighborhood farms and stuff, you know. And when I was over there, the wheat and stuff was gathered up by kids in the family. The whole family go out there, and they cut it down with a sling blade and tie it up, put up bundles. And when they harvest it, they go out there and all of them. I mean, you didn't have no tractors. I think they had once in a while you see a tractor, but it wasn't much of a tractor. And, you know, the women over there, the older women, walked their milk cows every day to the side of the highway and stake a stake in the ground and leave them out there half a day. Then they go get them, take them in during dinner and do whatever, milk them or whatever. And then they take them back out to another section of the highway because they don't have many fences at all, you know, because, you know, it's a poor country it was. And, and they stake the stakes and you'd be going down the highway and, you know, you'll see four or five cows. Four or five women toting their milk cow. I mean, got in their milk cow like they're walking their dog. <laughs> and that's the truth, too. That's the truth, man. They, I mean, but food, uh, the greatest food you ever eat. And the country wow. is beautiful. Beautiful country. And uh, you see more castles over there. I mean, they got castles and they've got, you know, salt mine. Auschwitz was over there, you know, with the Jewish camps and stuff they had yeah. and all that. That was that was amazing to see that. It, it really gave you a different uh, respect to everything yeah. that happened back then when you go there and you're standing there in Auschwitz, you know. Yeah. And 
Uh, it's it's just amazing that the country ever survived all the takeovers that it had, you know. But it was a good uh, it was a good I guess I'll call it a gig or whatever. But I stayed there, went for ninety days and stayed three years. So <laughs> that's pretty good. They should, I, they should yeah. hire you for the tourism bureau. You're talking me into going over there. Yeah, oh, it's beautiful. Let me tell you. And you know, it's not that expensive to go. You know, I mean, they're uh, now Warsaw, different thing. You go to Warsaw, get out of Warsaw quick. You know, I mean, Warsaw is uh, international thing. You know? But uh, once you go into Warsaw and you start reading about what happened back when uh, Germans come in and how many people got killed, how they destroyed Warsaw, leveled it, and all this stuff. I mean, it's amazing how, you know, how, and now it's a thriving country, Poland. You know, I mean, they're really getting up there, you know, but. Everything is, uh, my wife come over and she, I give her $5, she go in the farmer's market, come back, two big bags of groceries, food, chicken, eggs, everything brought in fresh that morning, and she got change back. And she said, I can't believe this food's so cheap. I said, yeah, it's fresh. And, uh, you know, but a uh, beautiful country, though. You ever get a chance to go to Poland? Hey, that's a beautiful. Bob Briler, you know Bob Briler? Bob Briler is a New York athletic commissioner. He come over to Poland when I was there, him and his wife, and they come over because he's Polish, he's from there. And he said, I'm, I talked to him to come over and visit me. And uh, he came over and he said, the greatest decision he ever made is wow. to come to Poland. And uh, there's some, uh, you'll read about some things happening in Poland to him too in that book. Yeah, he tells me all the time, though. He said, man, I can't believe, I don't know. This year, I had him running around, you know, I could tell him the sky was falling. He's going over and get an umbrella, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't tell him that it was happening, you know, so, but, you know, after you get as old as I am, you know, you just want to, I just want to make it to the end, you know, I don't want to, I'm, I'm just, you know, I see so much violence out here and so much cruelty and, you know, I don't, I see these kids born today and yesterday, well, you know, what are they going to have to face? I mean, this society is getting so messed up, man. And people say, yeah, you're Dr. D. You ain't supposed to feel bad about, hey, everybody's got feelings. And just because you don't show it in public, you know, I got I, I got a lot of feelings. I mean, I, I mean, you know, after all these years on this rock and uh, now you got to, and you look back on it and you say, man, I had a great life. You know, and people think I'm down and out, sick in a wheelchair and uh, all that. Well, I do have a couple of wheelchairs, but I bought them for antiques. One like on, uh, on uh, what was that show with uh, Bates, Bates Motel? <laughs> <laughs> really? That's what you yeah. bought? <laughs> yeah. I got a wheelchair that looked like the one Mama was in. Mother, mother was in, right? <laughs> and my wife said, what do you got that for? I said, well, maybe one day I have to get in one. I said, we already got one. She said, I'm not pushing that thing anywhere. That's scary. Get rid of it. So I did. <laughs> I put it back in the back of the, of the trailer over here. You know, I got some storage trailers out here on the lot, and uh, yeah. But like I said, though, man, it's been a it's been a great life. I mean, yeah. And if they just let me run with it, if they hadn't let me go and quit butting heads with me all the time, it would have been greater. But yeah, I can't ask for no more. Though I'm good. I'm healthy. Uh, my family's healthy, and like I said, I still got one good fight left. I can't find nobody want to fight. <laughs> there he is dr d david schultz part two that means part three 
next week on the show. Part three will be the final part for now, but I believe we'll be talking to David again pretty soon. Stay tuned for more, but part three with Dr. D next week on the show. And now we're going to end the show with a segment I'm really looking forward to introducing to everyone. It's a conversation I had with Don Leo Jonathan, one of the true wrestling legends who is still alive. He's 86 years old. He's actually in a wheelchair right now. He had a stroke not too long ago, but his long-term memory is intact. He remembers, as you're about to hear, going back to the mid-1930s, being at ringside while his father, brother Jonathan, was wrestling. It's really amazing when you think about it, because there aren't too many guys left that you could say were there when television first started with wrestling. When Madison Square Garden, when the new garden opened, he wrestled at the old garden. He main evented, I read a list on Cornette's show, every big arena you could think of for a generation. He main evented in. He was a main eventer against Ricky Dozan, Luthez, Vern Gagne, Bruno San Martino, Pedro Morales, Giant Baba, you name it. And everywhere he went, he was a major star. He was tall. He's like six. I mean, he was built everything from six, six to six, nine at different times, but he was agile and he could do things and he can go off the top rope. He was like no one else anyone had ever seen. You always hear Bruno San Martino put him over big time whenever Bruno does an interview. And it's such a delight to be able to talk to Don Leo and really pick his brain about parts of wrestling history where I know the overall scheme of things. And most people out there who follow wrestling history probably do too. But when you talk to someone like him, you get little details that you may not nor- normally have little details that you may not ordinarily have access to. And you'll hear one here. He knew Jess McMahon. We hear so much about Vince McMahon senior. He knew Vince McMahon senior's dad. He drove him wow. home. The night he died. So you'll hear that and much, much more. I want to thank friend of the show, Kevin Orcutt, for putting me in touch with Don Leo. Kevin's one of the youngest wrestling historians out there, and he's been threatening to do some wrestling books in the future, and I certainly want to encourage him to do that. But Kevin, thank you so much for all your help in hooking me up with Don Leo. And with that, let's go to this conversation with Don Leo Jonathan. I am very happy today to welcome to the Super Podcast, truly one of the all-time greats in professional wrestling, one of the great giants of all time, and that is, of course, Don Leo Jonathan. Don Leo, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Well, I'm very happy to be here, and uh, I'll try to answer all your questions, Brian. You know, you had such a remarkable career, and I just, uh, briefly, right before we started recording, I I made a little list, and there's not too many people in wrestling history I could do this for, but I made a list of the various arenas you headlined, and this is just a few of them, but in terms of the major arenas, you headlined the Marigold Arena, the International Amphitheater in Chicago, Madison Square Garden, the Old Garden, and the New Garden, the Olympic Auditorium, the Keele Auditorium, the Lorimer Stadium in Montreal. The Victoria Pavilion in Calgary, the Kobo Arena, the old Sumo Hall in Japan, Sydney Stadium in Australia, the Amarillo Sports Arena, almost every single legendary wrestling arena you headlined in. And like I said, it's such an honor to have you here. And your story isn't just your story, because of course your father, brother Jonathan, was a legendary wrestler too. And I was wondering what you could tell me about how he got involved in professional wrestling. Well... It, uh, my dad came about when uh, he was young. He was hurt quite bad, 
and his chest was deformed. And a boxer came through town, and Dad asked him, uh, Dad's still a young boy, asked him how he could get better. And this boxer put him on to uh, physiotherapy and, and weightlifting. And as he got older, then he uh, went to uh, college in uh, St. George, Utah. And from college, he went into the Navy. And uh, when he was in the Navy, he uh, worked real hard. They have good training facilities. So he got to be uh, the seventh fleet champion in wrestling and boxing. Oh, wow. And while he, uh, when he he was in San Pedro, uh, his his ship used to go to San Pedro and those places along the California coast. And uh, the promoters wanted him, uh, the professional promoters, so he couldn't wrestle while he was in the Navy, so he used different names so that the Navy wouldn't find out. And a story has it that one day he was booked against himself. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's a problem. (laughs) Yeah. This was around 27, 1927. Yeah. Then he uh, started wrestling uh, full-time professionally. And uh, his last trip was him and I was tag partners. We were in Denver, and that was in 1950. Which is not too long after you started. I started in 49, actually. Uh, Just a few little things. I was in school still. uh, But I never really started until 1950 in uh, August in Marysville, California. California really is a big part of the wrestling story for you and your father. You would have a few runs in California. Of course, people may remember you in the WWA in the early 60s, but I have a newspaper article here about your father. It's from October 2nd, 1936, and the headline is, Wrestler Uses Rattlesnake to Beat Opponent, and the story is about your father pulling out a rattlesnake in the ring, which scared the opponent, scared the referees, scared the audience, and the police made him put the snake away in his suitcase, which is a rather extraordinary story. I mean, maybe this is where the Sheik got some ideas later on in life, but did your father usually do things like that? Did he usually, did he like snakes? Oh, he was, uh... My dad would go to any lengths to do something different. And that snake's name was Cold Chills. He was my buddy. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm the one that 
five years old, used to sit in the corner, and if someone had that pinned, I'd just open the suitcase, and the snake was would go over and crawl up on his chest. <laughs> and I, I remember um, taking uh, on Hollywood Boulevard, taking the snake for a walk on a leash. I had the whole sidewalk to myself. <laughs> uh, he was about seven feet long. He was a, a big old Texas horned rattler. He had a big horn on his head. And he was a fierce-looking customer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a safe bet. Uh, without even seeing him, I'll, I'll be willing to bet on that. Uh, tell me, uh, Don Leo, your father, who were his favorite promoters to work for? Well, I don't know who what the name of the promoter was in 36. I was in California with him for a year in 36. I was uh, five years old. But later on, he liked uh, the Mouser Witches. I don't remember... Uh, him and I never wrestled in Los Angeles that I remember. It may have been in once or twice, but I don't remember it. And um, then uh, Cox, I forget his first name. He uh, run Denver at that time. And we went and spent uh, several months with him and then Dad got hurt and went back to Salt Lake, and I went to New York. Started by myself. Was that scary? Oh, it wasn't scary. It was, uh, I'd already been in the Navy, and I'd been around uh, a lot of the world. So I know when I first got there, I... I lived in the uh, Holland Hotel. Oh, sure, yeah. That's where the wrestling office was, Tootsmont. And when I first got there, I'd walk up to the corner and back. Then I'd walk up to the corner and down the corner and come back. <laughs> and... Uh, Everything went right till I found myself in Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you, I definitely want to talk to you about New York, and, and we'll get there in a little bit, but when it comes to Denver, for you and your father, was it difficult wrestling there in the high altitude? Uh, we had to get used to it. It took, uh, it took a couple of months. But I got used to it, and when we were logging up on the up in the high Rockies, well, I was uh, working logging at around ten to twelve thousand feet. Wow! So when I went to New York, I was uh, full of steam, boy. <laughs> I a... could go for hours. That's one of the things about you. And luckily, there is some footage. You know, I know that recently with uh, the archival project to preserve footage from Chicago, that there's footage of you there. I just recently watched you and Vern Gagne from Chicago. 
But you were so rare, especially when you started out, because you had the size, you had the muscles, and you had the agility. And there weren't too many people of any size who had the agility you did. Where did that come from? A lot and lots of work. It didn't come by chance. Dad told me, he said, if you want to make it, it's going to help if you're different. And you have the ability to be different. All you have to do is work at it. So I spent a lot of time getting that. Of course, I took tumbling when I was in school, which got me started. From then on, it was just work. I get an idea in my head, and I try to figure, can it work? And then I'd go down to the gym and see if it would. Sometimes, uh, like the nip-up without hands. Yeah. That took several years to learn to get my neck strong enough that I could use my neck to come to my feet. I didn't need my hands. That's one of the things I saw in that match with Vern Gagne from Chicago. I want to say it was 55 or 56. And yeah. you know, and here's Vern Gagne. And, you know, Vern, we don't have to really build up his accolades, but obviously he is a wrestler of high regard and he's in great shape. And here you are and you're doing the kip up in the middle of the match. And you don't really see that kind of thing in wrestling in the mid fifties. It stands out. It's so extraordinary. And you also didn't see a lot of people coming off the top rope or walking on the ropes but you were able to do that. When did you first feel comfortable with the ropes, you know, with walking on the ropes, with standing on the ropes? Well, I never did feel real comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> because a guy can always really grab a foot and then you got some major hurts. Back to your father, obviously there isn't footage of him that I know of around, so I've never actually been able to see what he was like in the ring. So for all of us who have never seen your father, maybe maybe have only seen pictures, exactly how big was he? And also, compared to you, compared to your style of wrestling, was he similar or was he very different? Well, I was six inches taller than him or, or four or five. My dad's strength was in his legs and for a six-two, and uh, 280 pounds, he had a 56-inch chest. And that was all from that injury and that working out that the uh, boxer told him about. But he worked hard. He trained hard, too. To get a 56-inch chest from one that was caved in, thought he was going to die. That was unusual. Absolutely. And again, like I said earlier, people still talk about Brother Jonathan. Uh, so it's a name, and and I'm glad we could talk a little bit about him today. It's a name that will stay alive in wrestling. But going back to you, you brought up going into New York. Uh, when did you go into New York? Would it have been 54, 55, around there? Or 1950. You were in there in 50. So you were in there. Just, really uh, 51, just after Denver. Uh... Max Bear, Primo Canera, and Good Time Charlie. I don't know if you ever heard of Good Time Charlie. No, I know. Um, I know Max Bear and Primo Canera. Uh, he 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 had boxers. Oh, okay. 
Um, they came to Denver, and as soon as I was through in Denver, they brought me to New York, and I started out in Stillman's Gym. I don't know if you remember Stillman's Gym, but that's where Marciano trained. Yeah. Of course, with a lot of guys, everybody trained in Stillman's Gym then. It, it wasn't like today. There weren't gyms on every corner. No, no, not 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 uh, for fighting, for boxing. You said you arrived in New York and you went to uh, Toots Mont's office, but that's one of the things I'm curious about. When you first get to New York, you know, obviously you said Toots, but who else is there? When did you first meet Jack Pfeffer? When did you first meet Cola Quariani? Then they were both in New York at that time. Yeah. Wow, what'd you think of Pfeffer? He was an unusual fellow. <laughs> <laughs> he has all the he has all those characters, you know, Haystacks Muldoon and Hobo Brazil and Bummy Rogers and he really he really did some wacky stuff. Oh yeah, he did. He uh ever everybody that was on top, he had a name for him for one of his boys. Asked me to come and work for him, but uh, I was looking for a higher uh, standing. <laughs> yeah, and you certainly found them. Well, you know, I wrestled in the Madison Square Garden when I was 19. And when I went to New York and I went down to get my wrestling license, now, I had not been out of the Navy a year. I'd done my time in the Navy, and the commissioner said, hey, we can't give you a license. I said, why? I've had licenses in California and, and in Colorado. He says, you're not old enough. I said, well, what am I going to do? Because you got to write home and ask your mother to send us a letter <laughs> giving permission for you to wrestle. <laughs> and at that time, I'd already been, you know, I was ready uh, for a main event in the garden by that time. And as soon as I got it, I wrestled Rocco in the main event in the garden. What was that like? What was Rocco like at his at his peak, at the peak of his popularity? What kind of experience was it working with him in the garden? Well, I was uh, a bit nervous. And here's a guy that's uh, been the main event uh, for quite a while at that time. And it was, it's hard to... Explain it, but I had four pound butterflies in my belly. You got to witness Rocca at his peak. You also got to see Bruno San Martino at his peak in the same area in the Northeast. How would you compare the two in terms of popularity? Oh, uh, uh, San Martino was much more popular as time went by. There was a time when I was. I was in uh, New Jersey at an arena the first time they introduced Bruno. Really? 
Yeah, and Rocco was already a seasoned veteran. So he came a little later, Bruno did. But as far as popularity overall during the run of time, Bruno was much more uh, talked about than Rocco. You ask any Italian in New York <laughs> who was the best wrestler in the world, yeah, it was San Martino. <laughs> they still say that to this day. <laughs> Many people in New York. Well, they got good reason to. <laughs> well, you know, I brought up uh, Cola Quariani earlier, and of course he would have a lot of involvement with Rocca. You worked with Quariani in the garden uh, in 1952. Yeah. Do you remember, did they all, were they already working together? Was he already helping Rocca behind the scenes? Yes. Yeah, well, when I got there, he was helping him because Rocco didn't speak that good English. He had just come up from Argentina someplace down there. And Coriani spoke several languages. Spanish was one of them. So, uh... Coriani sort of took charge of Rocco for the office. Speaking of the office, you know, so many people, when they think of New York, the first name they think of is Vince McMahon Sr. You know, he wasn't called Sr. back then, but Vince McMahon, the promoter. And based on when you went in there, you actually got to know his father, correct? Jess McMahon? I knew Jess quite well. I worked for him quite a bit. Uh, He used to like to take me to his outdoor shows. And when we was going to outdoor show, I had it set up with the guys in the back seat. But when he started worrying about it going to rain, I'd have one of the boys that start talking to Jess, and he would turn around to talk to him. And when he did, I'd push the windshield washers. And he says, oh, oh, my God, we're out of business. <laughs> I don't know. It looks pretty good, though. Look over there. There's blue sky. <laughs> and he turned around, and I'd push the button again. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of guy was he? Because obviously, Oh, he you know- was a great fellow. Yeah, he was a... Uh, I really liked old Jeff. I was very, uh, I took him to a match, and I don't remember where it was, Pennsylvania someplace, I think. Anyway, I took him there, and I was going to take him home, and he come and said he's not feeling well, and he was going to get a hotel room, and that's the night he died. Wow, so you were with him the night he died? Yes. And you had already gotten to know him pretty well. You had been riding to shows with him. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, and he was fair. As far as promoters go, he was fair. Yeah. There's a lot of promoters that wasn't quite as fair as he was. I think we've already mentioned a few of them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they were there. I was too smart. (laughs) The guys uh, in the office, Finkelstein and those guys who was working in the office, liked to play the ponies. And all of the wrestlers 
money were put in envelopes uh, on the desk. Well, when they uh, run out of money to bet, they would take all these envelopes out and take $5 out. So I uh, went up to see Toots and uh, he invited me office. I says, Toots, how much money do you have to steal before your conscience bothers you? He says, oh, about $25,000. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe he answered you. <laughs> so I made sure that after every match, I was up there when the office opened to give my envelope. You better get up there before they head out to Belmont. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they played everything. And when they won, they never put no money back in the envelope. But amongst all of that, Jess McMahon was a very fair promoter. Yes. How did Jess compare to his son, Vince McMahon? Uh, uh, the one we called Vince Sr. Yeah. He was uh, he was very fair to me. Of course, I sold out a few gardens for it. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, one time there I wrestled at uh, Pedro Morales. Yeah, 1973. And uh, they oversold the tickets by 20000 They almost tore that garden down. A lot of unhappy people standing outside with no place to, no seats. I bet. Well, the tickets was going pretty good, and then uh, a couple of days before the match, it sort of stalled out. So they sold, they put extra tickets out, uh, uh, out around where they have the ticket sales. Well, everybody come the last day, and they oversold the garden by 20,000 people. Which garden did you like working in more? The old garden? What we call the old garden, but... I liked the old garden. It had that... It had that uh, feeling to it, because uh, a lot of the champions I had worked with you know, I would come and uh, wrestle like two times the length. So I wrestled him. He he wrestled. He fought in the garden, in the old garden, and uh, Max Bear and uh, oh, uh, half a dozen of them that I knew that it, uh, it had the nostalgia. And that was the first garden that I wrestled in. <laughs> I think that was technically the third garden, but everyone calls it the old garden now because the uh, uh, most recent one has been there since uh, 1968 or 69. I forget off the top of my head, but you main evented both gardens and you main evented against Pedro. You main evented against Antonina Rocca. You were really in New York for so many historic things. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, if you remember or not, because so much of this history is not documented. But from what I've done research on, do you remember, were you on the very first television show that was taped and aired in Manhattan? 
for wrestling? I were. I were, I was. And that was me. And I was wrestling uh, a fellow from Texas. And we were on the first match. And it was the first match that went coast to coast. The television, the first television broadcast that went coast to coast. And that would have been out of the television studio, which later was owned by Sony on 54th Street, I think, over on the west side by Hell's Kitchen. I don't remember where it was now. I I thought it was New Jersey, but I'm not, uh, my mind is a little fuzzy on some things. No, I could be wrong too. But what was that? I never admit you're wrong. (laughs) Well, let me ask you this. You were involved in wrestling right before television. What was television like in the locker room? Were guys scared that it would hurt the house shows? Were there guys who were very progressive and realized that television was the future? What was it like when television first hit the wrestling business? We had them both. There was both. I liked television. As a matter of fact, uh, when I... Uh, Got into the Hall of Fame. That's what my uh, category was, was um, television. Because I was right there pretty much from the start. You really were, and you were also on so many of the key television shows. You were on the TV coming out of Los Angeles. You were on the TV coming out of Chicago. And then you were on the TV coming out of the Northeast, whether it was Bridgeport, Connecticut, New York City, or Washington, D.C., you were really on every major early wrestling show. Yeah. And uh, it, uh, that's the promoters done that for me because they, they wanted me. And a lot of the promoters, I have to give them credit as far as I'm concerned because... They put me in a position to do that. Fred Kohler was the promoter in Chicago. And of course, like I said, you were on those TV shows. What was it like being in Chicago at that time with the Dumont Television Network? Uh, That was from Marigold Garden. Yes, Marigold Arena. I think his name was Jack Bickhouse. Yeah. Uh, I went in... Uh, they, they called me up and wanted me to come to Chicago and see how I would do on that uh, TV. How did you do? <laughs> we're looking, they were looking for people to enhance their product. And it really was a hot period in Chicago because you had Vern Gagne, you had Luthez, you had a lot of young guys coming into the business. You had Reggie Lasowski, who later became the crusher. You had Dick the Bruiser. What was it like? I mean, was that a good crew to be a part of? Yeah, I was, uh, I associated with a lot of those, those fellows and I, I knew them all and probably wrestled them all. I have a, at the Cauliflower Alley Club, many, many times I have people come up to me and say, oh, I wrestled you in Chicago, <laughs> and I don't even remember their names. 
One guy you got to wrestle in Chicago was Luthez, legendary NWA champion. Do you remember the yeah. first time you got to work with Luthez, what that was like? No, I wrestled with Luthez uh, uh, in Denver. Oh, uh, talking about Luthez, he, uh, he came into San Francisco when I first started, and uh, he, t- he told the promoter, he says, why don't you put um, Garibaldi's and the Jonathans together. It'll be the first time a father and son tag team has ever been. So I knew Lou a long time, the same as Jack Dempsey. Jack Dempsey was a family friend. When I went to New York and things wasn't working out with the boxing, he said, turn strictly to wrestling. He says, leave that boxing alone. They're not going to treat you right. Did you ever go to his restaurant? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. I, I used to go there and talk to him all the time. He was a good friend. When did your family first meet Jack Dempsey? Uh, back in the 30s. My dad, uh, my dad knew him the best. Matter of fact, uh, uh, Jack Dempsey and my dad had the first boxer-wrestler match. Where was that? Uh, I think it was in Salt Lake. Not a lot of people talk about Salt Lake. Of course, you, you, you were known in your wrestling career as the Mormon Giant. So when I ask you about Salt Lake, was there a big wrestling history there? Because I don't know too much about it. Well... Bill Longston came from there. That's all you got to know. Oh, there you go. Wild Bill Longston, sure. (laughs) Yeah, he was in there. And there was a lot of later wrestlers. Uh, Bill Melby. There was quite a few of Mox Anderson. Who was the promoter? You shouldn't ask me that. (laughs) Okay. I know it. I, I know his name, and I can't say it. Okay. I, uh, I, I, I can't bring it out right now. You know, another city you would have great fame in that doesn't get talked about a lot is Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska. Do you remember the first time you went into Omaha? I don't remember the first time because I was there before uh, the Deucics. Before the Deucics? Wow. I wrestled Omaha before the Deucey, and uh, I can't for the life of me think of that promoter's name, but he was uh, really a nice fellow, too. Brought me in, took me out to nice steakhouse, paid me off good. As soon as we hang up and I sit here a few minutes, it'll come Another name I wanted to ask you about, Don Leo, and I know we're jumping around a little bit, but I wanted to ask you about what it was like to be in Montreal main eventing against Yvonne Robert, who was just such a major star in Quebec. Well, one thing I can say about it, he made me a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I, I wrestled Yvonne Robert in every... 
Every place they had mosquitoes and black flies. And if you've ever been to Quebec, you know what I mean. <laughs> well, you know, you have a long history of wrestling in Quebec, not just against Yvonne Robert, but of course later on people still talk about you and Andre. Did you really love wrestling in Montreal? I did. After I learned a little French. <laughs> yeah, you have to, yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh... It was a little difficult uh, at first, but I, I finally uh, learned enough that I could travel by myself and get the directions from people on the street. So, yeah, but I loved, I loved Montreal. When I first went there, I was sort of in awe of it with the blind pigs and the People staying up all night and cheating the election system. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was was quite an experience for a young fellow. What was it like main eventing, though, against a local legend like Yvonne Robert? Did those fans try to get you every night? Yeah. (laughs) But uh, Yvonne was bad. Him and Larry Mokwe. You get him down, you get him in a bad spot, and they'd holler out to the crowd, Aidez-moi! Aidez-moi! <laughs> that means help me. Yeah. And then all hell would break loose. I knocked out more guys off the edge of the ring. I, I couldn't even count them all. <laughs> I got so a one punch would do it. I just go down there, down the ropes before they'd get in. <laughs> oh, it was terrible. But you know who was the one, the greatest guy I wrestled in Montreal? No, who? Kowalski. Again, another guy who was a major star everywhere, and especially in Montreal. Talk to me a little bit about Killer Kowalski. Killer Kowalski was a fine gentleman. He was mean and tough in the ring, but outside of the ring, he was a nice, nice fellow. And he, he, uh, him and I used to talk religion all the time. Because he hadn't really found a religion that he wanted to be with. I was pretty much satisfied with being an elder in the Mormon church. And uh, I used to talk to him, and he would take me to uh, the big Catholic cathedrals, and we'd go there and light candles and say prayers, and we'd done that all over Quebec. And then he uh, got with a couple of more religions, and then he uh, thought he was going to learn to live on air. (laughs) Almost killed him. Went down to 180 pounds. Well, he thought he was going to live on air? Yeah. (laughs) No one tried to talk him out of that? Yes. Everybody he knew tried to talk him out of it. Pretty soon the doctor says, you better get some fat on you or your kidneys are going to drop. 
It was terrible. A great big old guy like him. And at one time, uh, he was down to around 160. And uh, Eddie Quinn had a good talking to him. Uh, Eddie was the promoter of Montreal then. What did you think of Eddie? Was he fair? Uh, I would say he was fair, but he never, uh, he still thought he was a Boston mobster. Because he came from Boston, that's right. Yeah, he talked that funny way that gangsters talk on the movies. (laughs) And he would, uh... A lot of these guys, he never treated right. He he, he would uh, call them out in front of people. And sometimes uh, his innuendos were very hurtful. And you can't do anything because he's the promoter. He can leave. Well, <laughs> that's, about, that's about it. That's yeah. what I've done. Yeah. <laughs> you walked out? Uh, several times. When you mention Eddie Quinn, I also think of Paul Bowser. Did you work for Paul Bowser? Oh, yeah. In Boston? Yes. And was he fair? Yes. Yes, he was of an old school, and his wife was an old professional wrestler. Yes, I I liked him. I remember a letter. He had a letter on his office. He was laying there, and it was addressed to Pale Boozer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, one more thing. I know uh, we only have limited time today, Don Leo, but one more thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about was your trips to Japan. You made eight tours of Japan, and you worked for several companies. You worked for All Japan. You did one. I worked for everybody that wanted me. I love Japan. Well, the first time you went over there was in 58 with uh, Sky High Lee and Handsome Johnny Berend. I believe they were on that tour with you. That's right. What was Japan like that first time, and what was it like working with Ricky Dozan? Oh, Ricky Dozan was a pretty self-centered guy. And Everybody thought that Dozan was a king. And every once in a while, I'd have to slap him in the line. Really? Yeah. He, uh, he was good. He was, a, you know, he was a good wrestler. But he was just, uh, he had just learned the uh, North American style. So he was uh, a little uh, he was a little rusty at times, and when he would start feeling too cocky, he'd get put in line. Would he end up going in line? Did he accept the slap and understand that he better cool out? Well, the last time I had to go around with him. The promoter says, if you want to stay in Japan, you better treat them better. (laughs) (laughs) I said, send me home. I don't care. You worked with him in Los Angeles, too, not just Japan, right? Yeah. 
Well, he he finally got the message and turned out to be not too bad. But the reason he died was because after he got stabbed, he's walking around showing everybody uh, the hole in his belly. That's crazy. He was. He was certifiable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Ricky Dozan's two most famous students are Antonio Inoki and Giant Baba. You worked with both of them, and not just in Japan, and eventually you would go with Giant Baba and join All Japan Pro Wrestling. What were they like early in their career, Inoki and Baba? Well, I uh, when Inoki started, I had the privilege of helping train him. Really? I didn't know that. Wow. And he turned out to be a very fine wrestler. I didn't think too much about him and Ali. Well. <laughs> I didn't think very much about that. I thought that was a detriment to both professions. What about Giant Baba? Oh, he was a darling. I was living in Ridgeway, and Fred, uh, Fred, Fred, uh, the Australian, he uh, was training Baba. And I, I used to get up really early to go fishing. And down the road, here would come Fred Atkins. Here would come Baba with Fred on his back, <laughs> running down the road at 5 o'clock in the morning. That must have been some sight. Oh, he almost killed Baba. But he was a tough teacher, Fred Atkins was. He went to work for that uh, hockey team in Buffalo, and they said, you better get rid of him or we're all quitting. (laughs) But that's the way he trained himself. He figured everybody else could do it. What was it like working with some of those other guys who also had the height that you did? You ended up working with Baba. You worked with Andre. You worked with Ernie Ladd. Was it different for you when all of a sudden some of the other wrestlers were coming in and they were also super athletes and they were also very tall? I loved it. I didn't have to bend down to hook up. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> That's a good reason. <laughs> yeah. Some of those shorter fellows, it was a little difficult. You wrestled some short guys, too. I did. Uh, I uh, I wrestled them all. Uh, I was at the Cauliflower Alley Club, and one of the uh, funks was uh, talking about me. And he said something that I won't forget, and I, I appreciate it, whether it's true or not. But he said, oh, I was the best heavyweight of the 20th century. Can you imagine that coming from a guy that spent 30 years in the ring? But you know what? I find that if you talk to people who saw you or worked with you, they all say the same thing. I've heard Bruno Sammartino say that you were one of the great talents of all time. Well, he's a friend. Bruno's a friend. Thank him for me. (laughs) Yeah, I certainly will. I wanted to ask you, going back to Baba, 
Do you remember? Because, I mean, you worked for the IWE, which was the group that uh, had uh, strong Kobayashi, and that's the first place Andre wrestled in Japan when he was still Monster Rusimov. And then you, when All Japan started, went with All Japan. You went with Giant Baba. Did Anoki try to get you to come to New Japan? Did the Funks book you in All Japan? How did you end up there working for Baba? I think Rusev put me on to him. Really? Okay. I think so. Because uh, Bernganya was with uh, International, I think. Yeah. And I worked for him, too. So he wanted a cut. So when we come back, I give him his cut in the dressing room. It almost floored him. He says, I never expected it. Nobody else has ever paid me. (laughs) That is funny. Well, Vern was that way. The only thing he liked better than wrestling was the money he got. What was it like for you when all of a sudden a lot of your contemporaries, Vern Gagne, The Sheik, Dick the Bruiser, Eddie Graham, you know, one after another, and there are more, obviously, but all of a sudden they're not just wrestlers. All of a sudden they buy into different promotions, and they're the promoters. Was that different for you when all of a sudden the guys you were working with were the boss? Well... That's a tough one because there's a lot of mixed emotions there. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes guys you that was your bestest buddies turn out to be businessmen and they want to keep as much for themselves as they can. Yeah, they got to go to the racetrack. One that I never worked for was Eddie Gossett, who was later Graham. Yeah, Eddie Graham in Florida, sure. Yeah. Well, him and I, we used to uh, work in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And once a week, we'd take a trip and go down and hit towns in Kentucky and West Virginia, up the Shenandoah Valley, Baltimore. So we always carried our rifles and we hunted groundhogs. And one time, Eddie Graham, uh, who was Eddie Gossett, he had long, long, blonde hair. And he's sitting in the front seat, and I'm driving. And we pulled into this farm, and this old guy tuned the back of coveralls, shoes on with no socks. And we asked him if we could shoot groundhogs on his place. And he says, sure. And he says, is that pretty girl there going to shoot too? (laughs) Eddie must have loved that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, your hair was pretty long too, now that we're talking about it. For the time. (laughs) (laughs) Mine was black. (laughs) You bring up Eddie, I have to ask you, What did you think of Dr. Jerry Graham? Oh, he was a piece of cake. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Oh, he got, um, the demon rum took over, took took him over. He was always a pretty outgoing type of guy, and 
I remember him lighting a cigar in a restaurant with a $50 bill. He thought that was great. I thought that was a great waste of $50. It never impressed me at all. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a great idea. But to me, it didn't. I was raised. Uh, I was raised on the farm to make extra money. I trapped gophers and coyotes and bobcats and porcupines. <laughs> Everything had a price on its head, and a gopher was five cents. I'd have to get twenty of them suckers to make a dollar. <laughs> but a dollar in them days, you could buy a hunting knife. So that was okay with me. One more question this week, Don Leo, if I could ask you. You brought up various people who were your friends. Who were the best friends you ever had in the wrestling business? Well, Kowalski was one. After we both retired, we stayed not close enough to ride or anything, but at the Cauliflower Alley Clubs, we sort of gravitated toward each other. Nick Balkwinkle was a fairly good friend, and Joe Blanchard was a good, good friend. And the list could go on and on, but my mind won't. I can't remember all their names. Eddie Gossett, or Eddie Grail, was a real good friend. Robert was a fairly good friend, as long as you watched him. You had to watch Olivon. He, uh, he, like, one time he brought a guy into the dressing room. He says, this is my friend. He makes all my suits. He's going to measure you guys for suits. Oh, okay, Yvonne. When, uh, when he got through measuring everybody, Yvonne says, now remember my cup. <laughs> I thought, well, he's doing us a favor. <laughs> but I don't think that favors all outgrown one way. But you know something? The wrestling that I done, I enjoyed. I really enjoyed it. And I've had fans tell me, well, you must not have been in too much trouble. You have a smile on your face. And I tell them I had a smile on my face because I was loving it. I enjoyed wrestling. And I'd get hurt and I couldn't have couldn't wait to get back in shape to get back into the ring because it was something no matter what country I was in. In South Africa I wrestled some tough, tough guys. And a lot of them hurt me. But I loved <laughs> not a masochist or anything. I just like wrestling. Boom! There it is, Don Leo Jonathan. You'll actually be hearing more of him on the show, I believe, in the coming weeks. So stay tuned. We have a few more things recorded and a few more things that we're planning on recording. But what a delight. What a what an honor to be able to speak to one of the great living legends of professional wrestling right now, Don Leo Jonathan. But with that, Scott, we're going to wrap up the show. Anything you want to say here at the end of the program? Okay. okay, okay, once is enough. You can turn that crap off now.
How can the listeners stay in touch with you, you smartass? I am on Instagram. They can find me on Instagram, where I do hilarious graphics, uh, witticisms, and so on to go on along with those graphics. And maybe 5% of the time, it's even wrestling related. What gra- uh, hold on. What graphics do you do? What are you talking about? <laughs> st- stolen graphics. You know? <laughs> Like everybody else on that damn thing. Occasionally, I take a nice picture of myself. Those go over pretty no, good. Nobody calls them graph. I do graphics. No one says I do graphics when they just post pictures. I say and stuff. it. I say it, buddy. <laughs> I do lots of graphics. You sound like you're a graphic designer when you say that. Well, you know, from a, a small acorn, a mighty oak will one day grow. So. <laughs> well, you can check out his his graphics, his small graphics. He's like our crumb over here. Go to uh, how can they how can they access all your graphics? I'm over there on uh, Instagram <laughs> at a, an address that I can't think of at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're at Scott I'm Cornish. Also, I'm also on. I think I'm S Cornish or S Cornish two. Yeah. Scott Cornish two. Some and people always ask about that, and it's because somebody out there has my name. And because I have not yet been verified for my worthless contributions to social media, <laughs> I don't have that that little check mark that you don't get on Instagram. But I also don't have it on Twitter, where you can uh, you can find me on Twitter as well. Well, there we go. And uh, of course, you'll be back here in the co-host chair pretty soon. And hey, we may have some Star Wars coming up pretty soon. And of course, you'll be a big right. one of those. But as we wrap things up, of course, in-house notes. You can follow the show on Twitter at six oh five pod. You can follow me on Twitter at great Brian last, and you can follow the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network on Twitter at super podcasts. You can follow the show on Facebook by liking the page at facebook.com slash super podcast. You can go there to see the official Travis heckle artwork. You get show updates, vote for the top 10, get the comment about what you like on the show, the central hub for all social media for the super podcast, facebook.com slash super podcast. If you already like that page and we will check if you, already like that page then you're welcome to join the mothership facebook group facebook.com slash groups slash super pod talk the mothership is a place for 605ers to talk about show topics as well as and mostly off-topic things movies music sports other wrestling things past and present whatever it may be if you want to join the community of 605ers of mothershippers out there you can go to facebook.com slash groups slash superpod talk remember you have to already like the official facebook page on the topic of the mothership of course the new shirt the mothership will be coming very very soon you can go to tinyurl.com slash superpod store to access the official online store for the super podcast get the logo shirts get the polo shirts get the yo mamba shirts magnets stickers and coming soon the mothership shirt in black ash gray and baseball style shirt once again stay tuned tinyurl.com slash superpod store and of course on the topic of tiny urls the one that made it famous tinyurl.com slash superpod amazon by typing in that link and adding something to your cart we get a little bit of love and credit from the people at amazon.com it's a great way to support this show that you love so much if you're going to make any purchases on amazon or you know someone who is or you're going to buy a gift then use tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. It doesn't cost you a penny and it supports your 
Super Podcast. But of course, on the topic of supporting the show, if you want to make a regular ongoing monthly donation to the show, you can by going to patreon.com slash superpodcast. Or if you want to make a one-time donation to the show, you could also do that by going to paypal.me slash superpodcast. You guys know how it works. We have the option. We could very easily have ads all over this show, have sponsors all over this show. We very consciously choose not to do that. We try to stay listener-supported with very minimal outside financial interests involved in this program. So if you really enjoy this show, you appreciate what we're doing, and this has become a part of your life, considering supporting the show at either patreon.com slash superpodcast or at paypal.me slash superpodcast. Of course, we're on iTunes, and if you already subscribe to us on iTunes, consider leaving us a positive review and a five-star rating. It really does help this show out, as well as liking all the other positive reviews. And thank you. I think we're over 250 uh, the last I checked. Thank you all so much. It's uh, so nice to see such support from all the 605ers out there. But if you don't want to go to iTunes, you can access the RSS feed or download the show directly and access every episode of the show at 605pod.com. The 605 Super Podcast is sponsored by Ramsor Records. Go to ramsorrecords.kungfustore.com, enter the promo code 605 at checkout, and save 20% on all purchases. And remember, you can pre-order now the new album from the National Reserve on Ramsor Records, Motel LaGrange, on CD, LP, and digital download at Amazon, iTunes, or by going to the nationalreserve.kungfustore.com. R-A-M. S-E-U-R Ramsor Records dot Kung Fu Store dot com. If there's anything you'd like to send into the show, you can do so by sending it to the 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, the mothership! P.O. Oh. Box 1242. Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. I want to invite everyone to check out some of the other fine shows on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, including Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry, available every week at baldrinpod.com. Ron Fuller Studcast, available every week at fullerpod.com. And of course, Scott Bowden's Kentucky Fried Wrestling at kfrpod.com. All Arcadian Vanguard shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podcast Attic, TuneIn Radio, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Scott, we're about to wrap things up. Anything else you want to say? So long, fans, from the Empire State of New York. Okay, there's your sign-off. But for uh, the wrestling humorist Scott Cornish, I'm the great Brian Last. Until next time, tally-ho! Hello, friends. This is the great Brian Last from the 605 Super Podcast. And this is Mike Mills from Booking the Territory Podcast.
And we are very happy to announce the brand new Mid-South Wrestling Television Review Program brought to you by the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. On this program, Mike and myself will go week by week reviewing Mid-South Wrestling Television shows, a program and a promotion I fell in love with in the 90s as a tape trader. And I fell in love with in 1981 as someone who was growing up in the territory in New Orleans, Louisiana. And we have a lot to say about this promotion, a promotion and a television show that is considered the best of the 1980s by so many. And Mike, on this show, week by week, we're going to be talking about the likes of The Junkyard Dog, Ted DiBiase, Cowboy Bill Watts, The Midnight Express, and so many more. Man, and I'm looking forward to it. I mean, just think about those names that you just mentioned. So many people went on to having all-star, major, big-time careers in the world of professional wrestling. And I can't wait to do it, man. This is going to be so much fun. When you think about the likes of Ted DiBiase, the Junkyard Dog, Paul Orndorff, all those names, people that just went on to just such great careers in the world of professional wrestling. And it's just going to be a lot of fun, man. You're going to see these folks from early on, before they became these, I guess, megastars in Mid-South Wrestling, burning the territory up setting the territory on fire gonna be a blast brian i can't wait to do it so subscribe wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts and get ready we'll be bringing you the best of mid-south wrestling television